Hola. Hola, Charlito. Charlito. Hola, Charlie. Spit a rhyme or two. Let me see what you got. From Dykeman. Ain't a lot of rappers in Dykeman. <laughs> yeah, there they aren't, right? There aren't, no. Not really. Historically? Historically, there's been a few, for sure. You know, there was there was uh, someone named, uh, I think it was Rain, Reynos, Ramos. You know what I'm talking about? I've heard of Ramos, yeah. But I think he's from the Heights. He's not necessarily from there's the Heights. There's a new kid, though, from, from the hood that's pretty popular. He's called Shimmy Chu. Shimmy Chu. He's very, um, he's more of a, um... We're good. It's more like sides. a singer rapper. I mean, they're all singer rappers at this point. I feel like they're all singer. You know, more Travis Scott type shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm excited to have this friend here. His writing continues to check the pulse of the culture. <laughs> His views on colorism within Afro Latinidad has been met with expected resistance, yeah. but with recognition, right? Recognition, for sure, for sure. And um, also known for your work as a digital strategist at the most or one of the most respected newspapers in the world, the New York Times. And uh, recently you became an educator teaching classes internationally? Yeah, yeah, so I've been teaching classes and um, I just finished a, a five-week course in Chile. So I was teaching a Spanish course, all Spanish in Chile. So imagínate, I'm Dominican. Hey, so Dominican Spanish, hey. Right? Bro, you and sound like Romeo Santos right now, speaking, man. <laughs> and speaking to Chilean folk is a little yeah. different, right? Because they're Spanish... Your Spanish is just different. I don't buy into, like, your Spanish has to be Spaniard Spanish or Chilean Spanish or mm -hmm. Argentinian Spanish mm -hmm. to be proper Spanish, right? Like, I'm Dominican. My Spanish is what it is. Mm -hmm. But when I first started that course, I was a little intimidated, for sure, because I was a little worried that they, were, they weren't going to understand. Chileans speak Spanish in a very, like, the words are on top of each other. Right. Dominicans speak Spanish really fast. Mm. You know what I mean? I'm sorry, so you were teaching Spanish? I was I was teaching in Spanish. Yeah, Spanish was my first language. Oh, no, no, okay. You were teaching in Spanish, no, no, not Spanish yeah, to Chileans. I'm like, what's going on here? So I was teaching, right. I was teaching in Spanish, okay. uh, what, I, what I do at work. Um, and it went really well. It was a five-week course. They want to bring me back in April. So, you know, it's a blessing. I'm, you know, I'm extremely happy about it. It's an opportunity I didn't see coming. Mm. Um, but it came. That's you what's know, up. It happened and it worked out. That's great. Yeah. So, first of all, so you taught... In Chile, like it, this wasn't online. No, it was online. Okay, it was online last year. I went to Chile, mm. and we, um, well, I, I, I taught a course at a university out there in Santiago, and um, I had a good feeling, man. Like I had a good feeling. I was like, you know what? Like I, I think they really like me. I think they would bring me back. I wasn't expecting anything. I wasn't really even wanting for anything at mm. that point. But it just ended up happening. Um, so maybe like five or six months ago, they were like, hey, like, what do you think about? You teaching Spanish, not teaching Spanish, but you teaching a course out here. Right. I, I immediately went to like that, like, uh, I, I talk Dominican Spanish. Right. Right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you're going to understand that. But immediately I was like, yeah, I'll do it. You mm. know what I mean? And, I, and what I did actually was that even though it's my first language, I felt like I needed to really up my vocabulary on some yeah. level. So I, I started taking some classes just for, for vocab purposes. I felt like every class that I had, I just felt better and better. Speaking the language wasn't the issue, more so just 
certain terminology that yeah. you know may not necessarily work. You know, you say coger in Dominican, yeah. but that may not necessarily mean the same in right. Colombian or right. Chilean, right? So yeah. you gotta say tomar, mm. right? So it's just different lingo and different ways of going about it. Uh, but it was a positive experience, and I'm looking forward to the next one. So just grateful, man. You know, a lot of things have been happening, and it's been you know all in a positive route. Right, right. Did you foresee them going the online route before the pandemic? Um, or was this like the result of the pandemic? They were yeah, like, you know what, you I could just was, stay yeah, where yeah. you're at. It was and absolutely teach. more a result of the pandemic. I mean, I don't think even I could pull off teaching out there because of work, right. know, just my regular full time job. Yeah. But yeah, I, I didn't, honestly, I didn't really see it coming with the pandemic. You know, I think the pandemic has obviously affected a lot of people financially, especially universities right. at the same yeah. point. You know, people trying to enroll and things of that nature. But they reached out to me and I was I was with it and um, My I just God. ended up working out. My God, look at that. Look at that. Yeah, yeah. Are you stopping there in Chile as far as like teaching internationally? I think I heard something about you uh, potentially teaching at DR, at the University yeah, of DR. Yeah, so I, so I want to teach in DR. You know, it's, it's a goal. I'm not going to say that I have anyone that's like reached out to me mm. or anything of the sorts. But, you know, for the, the majority of like the last two years, I've essentially kind of like spoken in Mexico, spoken in, spoken in Spain, which is obviously Europe. Um, spoken to people in Argentina, spoken mm. to people in Colombia. I'm going to be in, in this conference in, I think, in Argentina in, in April. Mm. Um, so I, I'm just up for it. Like, I really like teaching. I don't, I don't necessarily like teaching, I would say, in the manner that I want to teach, like, every day. But I think what I do for a living is able to be taught at least on a weekly level. Right. And I think I'm disciplined enough to actually, you know, stay true to that. Yeah. I um, mean, I think this was the first first test in all of it, and I was able to kind of pass it. And, you know, I, I think, you know, just the sky's the limit overall. Yeah. Know? But I definitely like to teach in DR just because I think, and, and specifically I think in developing nations, as we like to call it, right? Journalism isn't necessarily something that is looked upon as like a real, real profession. Right. right? People do it. Right? Yeah. Um, but I think at the same time, additionally, what ends up happening is that a lot of these um, papers, you know, similar to, to, to the U.S., are controlled by certain factions, right? Mm-hmm. So you may have a paper that's more right-leaning. You may have a paper that's more left-leaning, right? And um, my concern isn't necessarily that. My concern is being able to kind of build up the skills of, uh, of journalists, digital journalists, but also at the same time make room for people who are in high school, are in elementary school, are in college, and really kind of get them to understand what I do. And get them to understand that it's an important part if you really want to become a journalist in this day and age because everything isn't about print right. anymore, right? Like, print still exists, but it doesn't exist everywhere. Yeah. What do you think are the obstacles for journalists in the Dominican Republic versus the journalists here? I think journalists in the Dominican Republic, for the most part, are really kind of confronted with something along the lines of people really feeling like it's a route, mm-hmm. you know? And I really look at it, I, I less look at it from, like, who can access journalism versus who can't, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like the who can't is really the conversation, right? Like, right. there's people that may not look at it as a job, right? Like, you know, I feel like Dominican Republic is in a place right now, at least when you look at it from, like, the inner cities or the poorer neighborhoods in that country, where a lot of people still feel the only way out is through um, sports and entertainment. Yeah. And that's no fault of their own. That's probably a fault of the government and the leaders that are in that country, right? Right. Um, but I also think that there's roads um, to really kind of break through that. And if the country is able to kind of really equal things out on an educational level, and equal is a very hard thing to accomplish in a country like that or any country um, similar to that one, and really get to a place where they're really kind of empowering the children to, to really see themselves as, you know, I, can, I don't have to be the rapper, but I can 
I can like interview the rapper. I can interview the baseball player and I can really build a career off of that. I think that's doable. But I think a lot of the people that have access to journalism, whether it's reading it, mm -hmm. or whether it's writing it, are people that, that are middle to upper class. And it doesn't, and I don't necessarily know if it's something that's on purpose, but I do feel like it's something that people that are in those communities that are poorer don't necessarily feel like they can do. Right. Not out of ability, but out of just access and, 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 and a realistic nature. Mm. Mm. You know, and as Dominican Americans, right, mm. I feel that uh, I've been really vocal that uh, we haven't shown much progress um, in regards to appreciating artistic nature uh, or professions, you know, and um, I'm sure some of the reasons for not fostering artistic expression may uh, be through the immigration, because of the immigration experience, you know, it's a difficult one and, and carries with it uh, many complications. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious as to uh, hear about the intricacies in the environment that you grew up in that tended to you know, uh, foster or nurture your creative talents? Oh, man. So, I mean, when I was growing up, it was basketball for me, man. Mm. So, it, it wasn't nothing creative. Like, I thought it was basketball and not, or nothing else. You know, I grew up playing baseball just like any other Dominican kid, and that was kind of like the road that I was put on through Little League and stuff like that, through mm. my dad, et cetera. Um, but basketball was kind of what I fell in love with. And I think really, like, a lot of American-born Dominican kids do fall in love with basketball yeah. more than they do with baseball just because... Baseball is a much slower game. Baseball is a game that you have to access in a different way. You have to buy a bat. You have to buy a ball. Right. You have to buy a glove, right? The seasons. The expense of the seasons and yeah. things of that nature, right? Traveling teams, et cetera. So basketball was an easy thing. You go to Dykeman Park right there, which is basically bigger than Rucker at this point. Right. You know, you could go to Cabrini. You could go to 218. You could go to so many different courts in that neighborhood. Um, but what ended up happening for me is that I ended up having four ACL surgeries. What? So, um, so when I was in high school playing basketball and I was going to camps and stuff, I tore my ACL and I wasn't able to play ball after that. Um, so it was hard. It was hard because I didn't really, um, I didn't really think I was talented at anything else. And when I got to college, um, I went to community college at first and I'm big, I'm a big proponent of community college and I couldn't. I probably couldn't tell you this when I was going, right? Because right. I felt so disappointed. Uh, because I felt like I just disappointed everyone and I was going to community college. I wasn't going to a four-year. Um, and um, I went there and I was kind of like just turning the wheels. Like I was just like, all right, like I'll do business administration like mm. everyone else is doing. I was a year, I was there a year. And in my second year, I was taking English like history classes, right? And I was writing papers and stuff. And at that point, my professor... Um, Pastor Riello, super shout out to her. She was like, hey, you should try out for the like school newspaper or something. And at that point, I was just like, fuck it. Like, I ain't got shit else to do. I'm all the way out in Westchester traveling daily. Like, I might as well do something. And, and at that point, like, I wanted to accomplish a degree, but I wanted to accomplish it more for my parents. Right. Um, so I started doing it and I started working for the school newspaper and I just, it started working out. And I felt like, I felt like I was. I think the problem for me was that I only felt I was good at basketball. Mm. So when I got to a place where basketball got taken from me, I lost all my self-esteem. Like, I lost everything, belief, anything you can imagine. And then I got to the place where, like, it was like, oh, shit, I need to find something else that I that can really make me feel, you know, the way that basketball made me feel. Um, and I didn't have any examples. I had no journalists to look up to, no mm -hmm. authors, Dominican, whatever. Uh, so when I started writing, you know, I was I was pretty decent at it at the onset, you know, and I was really writing articles, you know, I wasn't writing what you see me write on Instagram, which is more free flowing and personal. And, you know, it just started working out. And I think as I got better, 
I had the same hunger that I had towards basketball, which is like, all right, I'm going to wake up at 7 a.m. and go to the court by myself and shoot 100 jump shots. Right. It was literally the same thing with that, and I started just working and working and working and um, just reaching out to people and things of that nature, and I just wasn't scared, and, and that really got me to a place where I was like, this is it for me, and I, I just got to make it work. Mm. And I can't say I loved it, but I felt like it was... I don't want to say my way out because that's it's, it ain't that deep, you know what I'm saying? But like it was, it it was my way to graduation. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. you know I was a big fan of baseball. You know, contrary yeah. to to what you said, right? You know, yeah. I was a big fan of Roberto Kelly. I think he wore number twenty one for the Roberto Yankees. Kelly, he's Panamanian. Yeah, he's Panamanian. Panamanian. Yeah. Uh, Bernie Bernie Williams. Bernie Williams. Bernie. Williams Bernie, Bernie Williams. Yeah, Bernie Williams. Yeah, yeah. Williams. yeah, yeah. Um, you know. Uh, Don Mattingly at the time yeah. was, uh, All yeah, you know, so I was, again, a big fan of the Yankees, yeah. playing baseball early age. My my father had passed away when I was six, mm-hmm. so my best friend's father kind of stepped in, and he was a big baseball fan. Okay, so he, he kind of brought me into the baseball thing. Yeah. But let me tell you something, man. I, I went to the Dominican <laughs> Republic, mm-hmm. San Francisco de Macorís for a yeah. summer. And my mother put me in a baseball league. I think I was like maybe nine or ten. Yeah, yeah. When I tell you my self-esteem shot to the ground, like these kids were playing like men. Yeah, they played you with know? sticks and como latas. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, no. Yeah, no, no. They, they put, you know, and obviously we're generalizing. Not, not every, you know, neighborhood in DR, yeah, yeah. you know, they, they play baseball like this. But in my specific neighborhood, you know, in my mother's specific neighborhood, uh, my, my grandmother refused to sell her house, you know. Mm-hmm. They would put rocks inside of socks and then would wrap it up. And they would just get pieces of wood and use that as a bat. Skinny pieces of wood. Skinny pieces of wood, right? Yeah. Enrolled in a baseball team, in the local baseball team. Yeah. And when I tell you these kids were beyond talented, mm-hmm. beyond anything I've ever seen within my peer group in New York, I was like, oh no, like this is not the sport for me. Like I can, I can be a fan of it from a distance, but I'm not, I'm not going to play myself. And, and, and the level of focus and dedication they put to it because they know it's their way out. Imagine yeah. if they had other things on yeah. the table that they can actually put that same for sure. focus and dedication to as well. For sure. I found many of them to be charismatic, witty, yeah. smart, 100%. you know, resourceful. Resourceful. You know, like something that I wasn't at that age because mm-hmm. I, you know, I didn't have to be resourceful in New York City. Yeah. You know, all I need to know is like, mommy, can you get this for me? Can you get that yeah. for me? Um, so, so yeah, that, that definitely opened my eyes. So I came back and I actually got into basketball and then I became a huge basketball person just playing ball. Our basketball coach also worked for the local parish. So he would have us like doing a whole bunch of maintenance jobs just to be able to play basketball for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, when I look at it now, straight illegal exploitation just (laughs) because he knew that we were fiending to play ball, but ball was life. Ball was life. Ball was life, man. And I think when... I think when you're Dominican, man, like, and you from Harlem, I'm from uptown, I'm from further up, right? I'm from Dykeman. You know, when Felipe Lopez came mm-hmm, out, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Rice. Right? Yeah. And, and growing up, you historically see Rice, obviously, being black or whatever, right? Yeah. You historically don't see yourself in Rice from, like, a from a cultural perspective, mm-hmm. right? And when Felipe came, it was like, oh, man, we can, yeah. we can do this. And all of you a sudden, know? all of a sudden, Dominicans are loving dark-skinned Dominicans, and <laughs> yeah. they're rallying that's behind a, them. I know, that's a long conversation, <laughs> but... You know, I, you know, I think you, you touch on that in your writing as well. Like, yeah. you know, light-skinned Dominicans love to rally around dark-skinned Dominicans as far as, you know, them being sports figures or... Yeah, yeah. But, you know, when it comes to the actual people, it's... It's, it's a little different story, man. I mean, right. I think, you know, growing up in the high... Growing up in Dykeman, man, like, I, you know, 
my my family's like half and half. So my family, you know, my, my dad's side is my complexion, my mm. mom's side is much lighter. Um, so there's people on my mom's side that you can arguably really say are like Spaniard, mm. right? Like really real. And there's no one on my dad's side that you could say is Spaniard, even if they want to say they're Spaniard. Right. Like a lot of, even dark-skinned Dominicans want to kind of like, you know, veer off blackness. But, you know, growing up for me, I mean, I was the only real dark-skinned Dominican dude mm. in class, right? It was all Dominican but I was the only dark-skinned Dominican dude. And I remember when I was younger, it was nothing, right? Like, I was just kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade. And I think third grade is when I started really kind of noticing the difference. And, you know, I had people call me the N-word, which I didn't really understand. I had people shout from windows, Mm. the N-word, the people that look like me. In your neighborhood. In my neighborhood, Mm. you know what I'm saying? And I would look up, and I'd be like, I wouldn't say anything, but in my head, I'm like, but I'm not that. Because the thing about being Dominican is that Dominican is almost like being a race. Yeah. Like, that's how you, that's how it's kind of made to be. Yeah. Most people think that. They still think Most that. Most people think yeah. that. So when you, when you grow up Dominican, like, I tell people all the time, like, you know, like, there's a lot of people that will say to me, like, yo, none of your friends are black. Mm-hmm. Like, when I see your friends, they not black like you. And I'm like, you know, I could curse. Of course, yeah, I'm bro. Not my nigga, like, I grew up from Dykeman to Dykeman, mm. right? And if not from Dykeman, from Dykeman to 157. Yeah. And not to say that there's not people that look like me, but in my circle, the people that I made friends with were all Dominican, and they all happen to be Indio or light-skinned, right? Mm. And not by a choice, but because there was no one that looked like me out there. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. So that's that's what it was at the end of the day. And... um it was it, it was a lot for me to really kind of get to a place of like, you know, self acceptance because, um, you know, I didn't know what really like from a historical perspective what black was. Mm. You know, I think I started going to Harlem when I was like eighteen. You know what I'm saying? Like Harlem. Interesting. Harlem is like on the one train. It's like ten minutes. So let me ask you this. So before, you know, before you started. Going to Harlem, right? Mm-hmm. Shout out to Harlem. That's where I'm mm-hmm. from. Before you started realizing that, oh, like I am a, a black man, yeah. you know, um, that this is my race. Dominican, that's my ethnicity, culture. How would you describe yourself? I was Dominican. Okay. 100%. Because uh, I have a friend um, who who's your complexion. Yeah. My guy, I love him. Also, uh, you know, he was a college roommate of mine, Leo Maud. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to be shouting you out right now, especially when it comes to this, but... You know, he was he was pretty conflicted as far as describing himself as mm-hmm. as as a black man, and he would call himself Indio Oscuro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and the interesting part is on my dad's ID, my dad's my complexion. It says Indio. Yeah. Because he didn't allow that in the of car. Of course, of course. That's what I'm saying. So he explained that to me, and again, he he said it in a in a kind of like in a laughing way, uh, but you know, there was some truth to that because in the Dominican Republic. You know, it was almost like against the law to call yourself negro. negro yeah, absolutely. You know? you know, when I really started kind of like really understanding blackness was with my dad, you know, and I wrote about it before with my dad. I remember one day I was like, yeah, people be calling me black at school. And I'm mm. like, I ain't black. And my dad was like, yes, you are. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And he's like, yes, you are. And I'm like, nah, I ain't. And he's like, what you think, like, there's a suntan or something like it can't come off like he was like i'm dominican mm. i speak spanish that's my first language but that doesn't necessarily mean that i'm not black i get treated like a black person i grew up getting treated like a black person i still get treated like a black person um and at that point i still didn't want to accept it mm. right i was sort of like i right, like he's my dad i ain't gonna argue with him you know what right. i mean 
but I was like, all right, you know, you got it. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, whatever. That's interesting. I'm, I'm wondering if you ever got to a point where you and your dad actually spoke about how to deal with comments being made by sometimes people you love, people that you're friends with. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think with my dad, like, my dad is naturally a little reclusive. So he's not necessarily going to really speak on the stuff that went on in his life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think my dad let me get to that place, right? And I think he just saw it in the conversations that I started having with him as the years went on. Right. He probably knew I wasn't ready at that point to really kind of say to myself that I'm black, mm-hmm. right? Because I viewed the thing about blackness for me at that point was that it was being told to me in such a manner where I felt like I was an outsider. Right. It was being told to me in such a manner where I felt like the people telling it to me were... It was like, oh, you're you're less than, you're mm. negative. Yeah. And then it was it was clear as day when I went into a bodega or when it, or I went into, you know, a restaurant and I'd speak Spanish and they'd speak English back to me and I'd right. speak Spanish and yeah. they'd speak English back to me, and I'm just like, yo, like, when I go into your bodega at eight thirty at night and it's the Red Sox and the Yankees and David Ortiz is up and you're rooting for him, and you see me and you can't talk Spanish to me, but I'm like, if David Ortiz ain't David Ortiz. And he walks into the store, you ain't gonna speak Spanish to like yeah. no, they're gonna be like, Dime lo money. Yeah, so it's just like to me, it was just very like yeah. it's like it shows you like what I guess what some level of acceptance celebrity gets you. Yeah. Versus what But but isn't that similar to like white mainstream and you know, African American culture? Mm-hmm. How how they love the culture but they not they don't necessarily love the people or at least express that through action through rights through political referendum you'll have you know like it, it's interesting man like growing, growing up you know just to kind of it's kind of the same thing when you look at dominican culture right yeah. now even like when you look at them bowl or rap or whatever you want to call it um it's something where they're obviously gaining all their influence from hip-hop culture mm. hip-hop american culture the way they dress the way you know, chains, whatever, has Jordans, whatever it may be. Um, and, and I think now what, what's, what's somewhat dangerous about it um, is that you have it be so mainstream now. But it's so mainstream now to the point where the people that are the face of it are not the people that were the face of it 20 years ago. Right. Right. And, and, and that's being forgotten. And it's, it's almost like I kind of look at it when you when you look at it from a Dominican and from a Puerto Rican perspective and you look at the people that consume it in Mexico and Spain and all these other places, it's almost like urban porn. Mm. You know what I mean? Because these are places where they don't have that shit. Yeah. You know, and these are people that speak the same language. Um, and it's like they want to be them, but they don't want to be them at right. the same time. Right. You know, and it's it's really interesting. And I think it's the same thing when you look at, you know, white culture when it comes to rap music. When you look at N.W.A. in the 90s and how people consumed N.W.A., the majority of people consuming it were white people. Yeah. Or at least purchasing it, right? Yeah. But they they looked at it and they looked at it like a life that was daring or a life that they wanted to, that they would dream of living, but a life that they wouldn't necessarily integrate themselves into. I call it the... Um you know, with Dominicans, the beige mainstream culture is not fully accepting of the blackness that lies within the community. And and you've spoken a lot about that um, in your writing. Uh, specifically, you wrote an interesting piece in response to an incident that occurred in Dykeman yeah. this summer, where in the midst of mass protests and also post a protest in Fordham in the Bronx where there was some looting, right? 
a group led by small business owners in the, in, in the Dykeman area organized themselves to quote unquote protect their community from looters. And um, what ended up happening, at least from what it appears, it was that they targeted people that weren't from the community and they specifically targeted uh, several African-American kids. And um, there was some backlash to that. And, uh, you know, there was some political stances, diplomatic stances taken after the fact to, like, you know, repair the, the, the brand of the Dominic, the Dykeman, you know, area to, to say that that wasn't the case. But you came through and you wrote a, a very powerful piece. Yeah, man, talk to me about that. Talk to me about your thought process when you heard that. I mean, I just felt like, look, man, I'm from there. I'm doing through from there. I, I rep it, you know, and people always talk to me like, you know, a few people, a few girls came up to me and were like, yo, I don't know why you rep this shit so hard mm. if if you say in your writing that niggas don't fuck with you, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, niggas do fuck with me, but I don't I don't have to fuck with everyone in the neighborhood or right. their actions at the same time, you know what I mean? So the Dykeman thing, quite frankly, like, it really takes me a long time to write anything that I post on Instagram. I probably post on Instagram every two to three months. And, like, even the shit that I wrote the other day probably took me, like, two. You know, just kind of, like, going through it, going through it. That Dykeman piece, Dykeman, that Dykeman piece happened maybe, like, at 9 p.m. the previous night. I wrote six pieces, like, in 35 minutes. Mm. And it was just off experience. It was just pouring saying? out of you. It was just experience because I knew it was, I knew it was all bullshit. You know what I mean? Like, Niggas ain't gonna sit here and tell me that they gonna defend the neighborhood when yeah. they're defending it every single day. Right. You know, if you're really gonna defend the neighborhood, you're gonna defend it from gentrification. You're gonna defend it from all these other things that are happening in the yeah. like to sit here and tell me that, all right, you know what, what happened in Florida ain't gonna happen here. Right. Like half got motherfuckers don't own any shares in the shit that's there. Right. Half the stores that are there ain't even of the community. So even I'm not advocating for the fact of Foot Locker getting getting, you know, ransacked or Jimmy Jazz getting taken over. But it's like, what y'all niggas really protecting? Right. You know, y'all niggas ain't y'all niggas ain't really doing nothing out here, you know? And it's like at the end of the day, it's clout chasing. Mm -hmm. That's really all it is. Niggas just got in the Dwayne Reed parking lot on Dykeman and Post and said, ain't no one going to come into our neighborhood. Yeah. And this, that, and the other. And then when it posted on video posted on, on Instagram. On Instagram. Yeah. And then people started posting it on Instagram after, like, peace treaties and all this other stuff. But it ain't real. Mm -hmm. it, ain't, it, it, it ain't real. You right. know what I'm saying? And then there's people that want to be part of the community and be bridges and be like, oh, you need to talk to them or talk to this person or talk to that. For what? Like, people really want you to talk to people that you know you're not going to get through to or that they're not going to get through to you, mm -hmm. right? You know what I'm saying? It's like talking to someone that's like, you know what, COVID don't exist. Yeah. Why am I going to have, have a conversation exactly. with you about? Like, you know what I'm saying? We can have a conversation about anything else you want to have a conversation about. But when I walk through a neighborhood and I'm Dominican, I'm Dominican, mm. I know I'm Dominican, right? And I feel like an outsider, I could have been that person walking at 8.30, 9 p.m. at night, walking up the block with maybe one friend. Right. You know what I'm saying? And I could have been singled out, and I could have just shouted back at them dudes like, yo, I've been here longer than all y'all niggas. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And what's going to be the response? Oh, my bad. But that but that targeting is based on race right. at the end of the day. Right. You can listen to rap. You can rock your Kobe jersey. You can rock your Kyrie's. You can do all that shit. But at the end of the day, ingrained in you, is this thing that you are not that person. 
mm-hmm. right? That you are not a black person, right? But you can get on video afterwards and say, oh, no, nah, we black, you know, yeah, yeah, of course we black. And then you got blogs up there and all these other people up there that clout chasing too, putting videos out and all this other stuff. And it's like, that's why I don't really fuck with niggas uptown. I don't mm. fuck with anybody uptown. Because mm. niggas, niggas be on some corny shit. Like, mm. they just be doing stuff. They just show up, take video, and then it's like, nah, man, the media is mm-hmm. representing the way it is. My nigga, you are the media. Right. You got a phone in your hand. Right. You literally got a phone in your hand. So you've become the media. Mm-hmm. So if I take a video of something happening in a certain neighborhood and I go ahead and send it to someone... I am the source. Mm-hmm. You the ones. You the ones all with your phone out. Like when you look at that Dykeman reunion, there were like thirty dudes with like phones out. Yeah. So if yeah. it's really about like protecting the community, you don't need all that. Right. You know right. what I'm saying? So like, if those dudes, for example, were dudes that were going to loot a store or whatever, it would have been on camera because the dudes that would have beat them up would have done it for a reason. Right. Not because they're going to send it to the New York Daily News or the Post or the Times or whatever, but because they would have done it because they wanted to get that rep. Like, mm-hmm. oh, niggas ain't coming to Dykeman and doing right. nothing. Right. Right? So it's like, come on, man. Like, people just don't critically think about this shit. And that's the shit that's corny to me. Yeah. I can see how you can be triggered as a Dashkin Dominican yeah, yeah, who, sure. who, who wasn't always, like you mentioned, like you would go to the store and they would talk to you in English when you would talk to them in Spanish. Like, what did that do to you as a youngin? Look, man, you go into a store. Look, first off, you have half of your family that loves you to death right. completely, right? Yeah. But every time they see you, it's negro bello, moreno bello, mm-hmm. negro fino, mm-hmm. negro fino, you know? As if so, to compensate for the fact that you're dark skin. That you're dark skin. Right, right. So automatically, I'm growing up knowing that I'm an outsider because I know my light skinned cousins aren't being called, you know, trigenito fino mm-hmm. or blanco fino or anything like that. So they're not called that. It starts at home. It's, it's like everywhere. Not, yeah, exactly. So they're not being called that. So I automatically know that that's, that's how they view me. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, because I'm getting all this hate at the same time, I'm embracing it because it's love. It's sort of like, oh, shit, he's a good-looking, dark-skinned man, you know? So everyone calls, this person calls me that, La Vecina, my grandmother yeah, yeah. calls me that. My grandma's friend calls me that, and I'm like, shit, they're calling me a moreno female, yeah. right? Yeah. At All least... these other dudes is calling me a nigga. Yeah, you know yeah, what I'm yeah. saying? And dark skin this and ugly that and all that, and I'm not getting no play from no girls and nothing at that point. Right? So I'm like, damn, like they're calling me that. So I started feeding into it. That's that's like a false sense of exceptionalism, but through the eyes of race. Exactly. So yeah. I started I started dressing up the part. I started yeah. like perming my hair, Sammy Sosa style. I should I even got I was about to get contacts, and I remember mm-hmm. the time that my dad really had, you know, that heart-to-heart with me was when I was about to get contacts, and he was like, oh, you know, what do you think, you're like a white boy or something mm-hmm. now? And I was like, nah, I'm, like, I'm just getting contacts, bro. At root, you know, I wasn't trying to be white, but I was trying to be accepted, right. whatever that was in that mm-hmm. neighborhood at that point, and that's kind of where it started, and like, it trickled down to the women I dated, you know what I'm saying? I dated all light-skinned chicks, mm-hmm. you know, and I have no issue saying that because at that point, it was really something that I was doing because I felt that was my closest point to acceptance. Right. Dating a light-skinned woman made me something exceptional to mm-hmm. me, right? It made me prized at that right. point, right? It was like, I like, I right, so I can't change my color. I could do all this other shit and I'm still a black dude, but what if I get the baddest light-skinned chick in mm-hmm. eighth grade or the baddest light-skinned chick in 11th grade or 12th grade or sophomore year of college? Then it's like, I right, the field is level because y'all niggas want that. Mm. But I got it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So for me, it was like a constant race 
to acceptance. You know what I mean? That's Women, interesting. clothing, um, shit. I used to wear fucking blazer suits, all this other shit. And I used to wear it because I liked it, but also at the same time because I knew, this is being real with you, no. I knew that there weren't a lot of dark-skinned dudes doing that. Wearing blazers. So I knew I automatically stood out. So everything I did was to be accepted on some level. Mm -hmm. And when I did that, I got that acceptance. Um, And it felt good. But then I started realizing, you know, through just my own exploration and through therapy and things like that, that everything I was doing was really for the love from other people and not really, you know, through me loving myself. Right, right. I have a few friends that are Dominican that are dark skin, um, and I would be lying if I would say that they all did not date lighter skin look, women. Look, look, yeah. it's, it's like a pattern, and you know this is not to this is not to say oh like you know it doesn't matter what what skin complexion you are. No, we're we're just trying to understand a pattern here and where and where that comes from, right? We're not trying to shame it. We're just trying to understand and, the and, behavior. And it was my own decision. You know, I had I had I had family members. I had to think I can control my head going pelo gris. So mm-hmm. like they wouldn't necessarily say you need to find a light skin woman, yeah, but yeah, they yeah. would they would give me like the codes, you know. Right. I, I could blame it a lot on like society and but it was a personal decision at that point too. It was a personal decision f- filled with the with the intention of fulfilling myself. Like my, my cup was half empty. I needed that light skinned girl to make mm-hmm. it fully full. And even when I thought it made it fully full, it wasn't fully full because once that light skinned girl left, it was back down to zero. Mm-hmm. Have you ever dated uh, dark skinned girls? Yeah, I have. Okay. I have. So basically like after my last relationship, which which ended in fifteen, um, I went to therapy and I was like and I was going to therapy before that. I was mm-hmm. going to couples therapy, I was going to individual therapy. And I was just like, I was just like, you know what? There's a lot of shit about me that I really need to explore. And I really started exploring really the colorism aspect of like my, my dating life. Mm. And um, and I dated, you know, plenty of dark skinned women while I was. And I hate saying it like that because it starts. It yeah, it just like, sounds weird. Yeah, you know like like pretty dark skinned women. Yeah, it just it's sounds like fucking weird. Yeah, yeah. You know? But I, I I own it. You know, and it was so interesting because I was ang- hanging out with a chick that's really like. You know, similar to what we're talking about, Afro-Latinida and colorism mm-hmm, and things mm-hmm. like that. And my girlfriend right now is a light-skinned girl. I mm-hmm. met her through my home girl. It just happened, right? Mm-hmm. And we clicked, and, you know, it's great. And she's a homie, and I love her to death. Um, and, she's, and, and we were talking, and we were walking one day, and she was like... She asked me about her, and she was like, you know, you write all this shit, my nigga, but... Yeah, you're with a light-skinned girl. Light-skinned. You know, your girl can be fucking Dominican, Middle Eastern, this, that, or the other, right? Right. So, like... How do you know that you're not uh, repeating the the pattern at Yeah, this no, point? absolutely. Because I think while I was dating, right, I was doing so much internal work to get to the place where, where I was just like, you know what, like, I can't necessarily... When I dated light-skinned women in the past, and this is not a knock on anyone that I dated before romantically mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. seriously, yeah, I was really dating for what it made me feel about myself. Right. And and what they made me kind of feel like I gained. Right. Like a status Mm. or a prestige or whatever it was. Right. Like whether it was family, whether it was friends, whether it was people just walking down the street. Right. Um, And and the thing was, is that I had to get to a place where, you know, not only I loved the skin that I was in, but I loved the people that had the same complexion as me. Right. And it really came down to re- me really getting to a place where it was not just about loving myself as a person, but loving blackness overall. Mm-hmm. Right. And it wasn't like I would, it wasn't like my therapist was like, oh, you know what? 
you got to date 10 black women in the next three years to really kind of accomplish that. But what I started realizing is that as I started loving myself, I started opening my eyes more to what um, not just the beauty within me or externally, but also the beauty just around me and right. the beauty that I was excluding because I felt that beauty wasn't necessarily going to get me anywhere, mm. right? Or necessarily going to benefit me in any way, shape, or form. Right. So I was single for like four years and I was going through it and I was doing typical dude shit, you know? Mm. I was having fun and doing whatever I wanted to do. Um, and then I got to a place where, you know, my homegirl just introduced me to someone and I was like, sure, I'll go out on a date with her and I'm attracted to her, she's attracted to me and it just got to a place where it worked out and I was like, you know what, like I'm at a place where... You know, I had my fun, um, and I think I'm ready. And I just wasn't ready at that place before because in my last relationship and the one before that, I was in relationships for probably like eight of my ten years. Mm. And I got to a place after that where I was like, I like now I don't live with my parents. Now I'm making real money. Now I'm single, and I wanted to feel that yeah. singleness. Right. And then I got to a place where I was like, I don't really want to feel that anymore. Mm -hmm. And she sort of just kind of fell into my lap. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. You know, there's a connection outside of that. You know, it seems like you're d you've done the work through therapy to understand that there's, you know, the fact that she's light skinned is not the uh, the leading factor or, you know, maybe a factor as to why you're with her. And, I, and, and I'm well aware, like, to, to, to what I told you about the homegirl, she was... I was like, look, I already know what you're going to say. Oh, yeah. No, listen, they would get you out here. They would, you know, these black women, you know, not all, right? Yeah. But, like, you know, they're like, uh, yeah, I know what you're going to say. It's a political like, choice. I'm, I'm well aware. You know? I'm well aware. Like, you know, and it's like, to be honest with you, I don't, I, I embrace it. I, I embrace the conversation because the right. conversation is at least me being honest about, right. like, who I was right. and right. who I've grown to be better about. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, and that's just the reality of it, man. I've gone through it. I, I, I mean, I remember. A lot of, you know, I'm 36, a lot, a lot of my time, I go to people, like, I remember, you know, in a previous relationship, you know, the girl was just like, yo, when my dad meets you, he ain't gonna give a fuck that you're Dominican. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, that, that, yeah. that ain't gonna help you. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, and, and, it, and it worked out, you know what I mean? But, like, there was, there was plenty of situations where I've been in rooms with Dominican fathers where they were like, mira. And what would they say? They were like, that's it. That's it? <laughs> and I just knew. Let that be the last time you come through these doors? That was it. That's oh, all God. I knew. Let me pour something for you, man. That's, all, that's, that's what I knew, you know? Th that's crazy. You know, um, you know, one of my girlfriends, one of my exes, man, uh, you know, childhood exes, I was told, you know, and I'm not even, this is what I'm not going to do. I am not going to sit here and actually try to relate or even compare my experience you know, as as a light-skinned Dominican yeah, yeah, yeah. to yours, yeah, right? Yeah. But it was an awkward situation for me to to see that the mother of the girl that I was dating, who was also Dominican, referencing the fact that I was dark-skinned. Mm -hmm. And I was like, but I'm I'm not really that dark-skinned, you know? That's and it was yeah. like, you know, wow, like, if it made me feel weird, right? So, and that was just one, one time, one instance, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and it was only because his, her ex was, like, super light-skinned and he had, like, light eyes or whatever. Um, so, you know, I was getting some of that, some of those comments, and it made me feel weird. But, uh, but you know, talking about that, talking about, like, light-skinned Dominicans embracing their African ancestry. Also, I don't know, I feel some of it, some of that energy is weird. And online, online I would dare to even speculate 
that some of these women are even getting tanned to look darker and to embrace it, but in a way like really talking about their blackness, but not really talking about the privileges of being light-skinned Dominican. Like, you know, like you can't hijack that narrative when you don't go through the things that a dark-skinned Dominican really goes through. Absolutely. Like, and, and, and I've talked about it before where, you know, I've dated girls who, and, and, and again, it's, you know, it's being, it's being up front, like, when I was in a phase where I really separated my, myself from black people, mm-hmm. I was able to be cool with things being said about black mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. because I, I built this separation where I was like, I ain't the same. Like, Claudio looks like mm-hmm. Willie from 125th, mm-hmm. but we not the same. Mm-hmm. I'm Dominican. You know, in the same way that, like, Africans will say, I'm not an African-American. Mm-hmm. Or Jamaicans or Haitians will say, I'm not an African-American, mm-hmm. right? Like, they build the separation to a place where they feel like they're better, right? And that's where I was, right? That's exactly where I was. OJ over here. Yeah, yeah. I ain't black, I'm OJ. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, okay. it was... It was definitely that, and um, I have a lot of people on Instagram, and, and there's people that I've dated that that I've seen talk wild, like like wild about black black, folks. People, black women, yeah, about black women, right? Um, yeah, and then they have Afro Latina in their bio, mm. and 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 it got to a place where Afro Latina was sort of like, or it is. It is a thing to claim because it helps you honestly gain followers. And I think at the same time, it allows you to get to a place where like if you are a palatable one, right? And what I mean by that is that you're someone who um, has curly hair that stretches down to your shoulders right. and you're lighter skinned um, and you're able to claim that. It's almost like claiming that makes you enlightened, mm-hmm. but also claiming that makes you exotic, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. you're willing to kind of take on what um the blackness is for the benefit that it gives you right but you don't want to recognize um how you walk in this world and what mm-hmm. privilege you have um in comparison to the dark-skinned homegirl that you have or the dark-skinned male friend that you have right um so i think it's a lot of that and the space is a space where you know i don't it's a real space with some real ass people that are way more qualified than me, way more educated about history than I am. But then there's a lot of people that really kind of gain um, a foothold in it right. and a really strong foothold in it um, because of how they look and how that works for media, publications, right. and things of that nature. Right. Yeah. And just to be clear, like for me, it, you know, this is not a conversation of whether you're black or not. This is a conversation about privilege. Yeah. Same thing, the same way, you know, um, I expect us men to like really do the work and, you know, talk about our privilege, talk about how we've uh, said things in the past or, or done things in the past that, uh, you know, would not put us in a really positive light when it comes to our counterparts, right? Um, I think light-skinned folks that are out there preaching that Afro-Latinidad should be doing the same shit. Like, you know you did some fucked up shit when you were young. You know you, you made some crazy comments, you know, sometimes it comes out by, you know, through through an ex dating someone that's darker, like, oh, you're doing this. And then all of a sudden, all of that comes out. And it's like, really? You, you had that in you. You had that toxicity in you about race. Look at that. Again, like, we all grew up 
certain prejudices, unless you, you grew up with very progressive parents. I didn't, you know, my mother had prejudices. My family, for the most part, were quick to, uh, you know, trace their lineage to Spain, but never to to Africa or even to Haiti. My grandfather was definitely... (laughs) had possessed Haitian ancestry, right? But no one spoke about that. You know, so it's a, you know, you wrote something about Sammy Sosa, which was also really, really good, um, which is about like, okay, we are here making fun of Sammy Sosa, targeting him as like this caricature of contradiction of sorts, right? But we're not looking in the mirror and seeing how we contribute to his actions you know, what we've done in the past to bring down his self-esteem once he has money to, like, start lightening his skin, getting contacts and so forth. Like, we, you know, there's some blame that we have to take or, or, or folks that have, that you know, benefit from light skin privilege but also have seen people say some fucked up shit about dark skin people and have just kept quiet. Yeah, and, and I think the movement, the movement for, for black self-love has done an injustice to really recognize black self-hate. And what I mean by that is really kind of study black self-hate and where it comes from, right? I hate it myself. I'm very clear about that, you know, and I'm 36. I probably started loving myself at 30. You know, that's six years ago, right? So if you want to take away adolescent life, five, 10, let's say 10 years of my life, you want to like say, you know what? You probably don't even know what loving yourself means, Mm -hmm. right? Let's say 20 years of my life, right? So 20 out of the 26 years of my life, I did not love myself, right? So now, take into account I grew up in America. Whatever issues America has, they have from a race-based perspective, right? But when you grow up in the Dominican Republic and you probably grow up at 5, 10, 15, 20, being specifically told that you ain't going to be shit. I'm not saying that I know anything about Sammy Sosa's upbringing, but Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that I think that he knew that outside of maybe baseball, there was probably no other way out. Right. And there was probably some level of like talk from people that were above him, parents, grandparents, whatever, that wasn't necessarily encouraging him or discouraging him, but more so saying, this is the ceiling, right? And this is where you're at because this is who you are and right. this is what your complexion is. And I'm sure that went to his interaction with friends. I'm sure that went to his interaction with women. And I think people really look at Sammy Sosa and say, I think he's 40, 45 at this point, whatever he, probably 45 to 50. And I think they really look at Sammy Sosa and they say, oh, wow, like this dude just decided to become light-skinned now. That dude became light-skinned at 5 or Mm. 10 or 15. He just couldn't do it. Interesting. Right? And he wasn't going to do it while he was a baseball player because it would be idiotic from a public relations level to do it. He decided to do it after his career was over because he's not at a place where he's come to accept himself. And the thing is, people want to joke about it. People want to make memes about him looking like ice cream or whatever it may be, like a Neapolitan ice cream or whatever it may be. And I ain't going to sit here and act like I haven't laughed at them. Everyone's laughed at them. Like, we are human beings. But the reality of it is, is that Sammy Sosa, who he is now, I was at 10, I was at 15, I was at 20, because I was trying different things to be accepted or to be looked at as I was not black, Mm. right? Sammy Sosa just went the extra route and decided, you know what, I'm just going to bleach my whole skin, and that's what it is. And I'm sure Sammy Sosa, in his head, feels like he's being more accepted, but he probably isn't. And I think people really kind of look at him and just want to kind of like brush it away to the fact like, oh, look at him, he's self-hater. You know, people love picking on Dominicans and race like there's no other country in Latin America and the Caribbean that's 
ten times worse right. if you've ever visited them when it comes yeah. to just, you know, colorism and things of that nature. But it's like no one's asking you to sit down with Sammy Sosa and kind of have a come to Jesus moment with him. What we're trying to do is actually get you to a place where you understand Sammy Sosa. Mm. And that's the thing. No one really wants to understand when people can say they hate themselves, right? right? Or hated themselves at one point in their life. There's women that look in the mirror and say they want new boobs. Look, I wear a hat and I wear a hat because I'm bald and I'm not that comfortable with being bald, Mm. right? And that's being real. You know what I'm saying? Like, and there's dudes that wear skull caps because they may not be comfortable with showing their receding hairline, whatever it may be. So, like, Sammy Sosa grew up in an environment, in a poverty-stricken environment, where he was probably told that blackness was not the way to go. He married a lighter-skinned woman. I dated a lighter-skinned woman. I have a lighter-skinned woman. And even if I don't have a light-skinned woman for the same reason that I had 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, that still happens to be the case, Right. Um, and Sammy Sosa just took that extra step. And people have to understand that. So when you say Moreno Negro, Moreno Radio, when you say Moreno Fino, understand that like that started that long ago. So if you're a parent now and you have a kid that looks like me, a daughter that looks like me, and you have grandparents that still feel that's cool, and they do feel that's cool because they're from that era, right? You have to tell them not to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Because I could 100% tell you, if you have a blended family in terms of skin color, that dark-skinned girl or that dark-skinned boy is going to develop a complex. I know dudes that are 30, 40 that still have that complex, right? Because I had it, you know? And and there's parts of me that are still kind of getting rid of it. Mm -hmm. But the most important part about that Sammy Sosa piece was that Really trying to get the point to people that, like, if you have a kid that's Dominican, Colombian, Brazilian, whatever it may be, Venezuelan, you have to let them know at every single point. Not that they're beautiful because black can't be beautiful because it is, but you have to rid that language of singling them out for being black because they're just going to develop that complex automatically. Right. And people look at it like it's harmless, but it's not. Yeah. It's extremely harmful. Yeah. Yeah. And especially for Dominican Americans, like, we have to undo. So much history, so much, you know, so many decades of dictators like Trujillo's with the Blanquimiento process, where he tried to codify um, his views on race on country by, uh, you know, whitening it and only uh, receiving uh, white immigrants into the country, getting rid of anybody from black descent. Same person who would wear makeup to appear lighter on camera and, um, you know, and definitely denounced. uh, Almost dark skinned. Yeah, denounced. You know, there's, there's, you know, there's some data as to that he was part Haitian or he had Haitian blood, right? Yeah. The remnants of that exists within our older generation, and there's a lot of work that we have to do, and we have to be consistent about it. So, you know, I appreciate the fact that through that piece, uh, you asked the reader to identify privilege, uh, but not only identify privilege, but to lead with compassion. You know, because the same way we should lead with compassion when it comes to like this older generation that was born in this, you know, in that system of Trujillo where, you know, race was was almost was used for survival. You know, we have to understand that, you know, they're working with the information that they had. And, you know, it's up to us with the opportunities that we have to like reeducate ourselves and the culture. Like, do you consider yourself a, a culture uh, influencer, because I think you are, man. I think I'm I, I'm a culture influencer by accident. I, I've been on Instagram for five or six years, right? And all I really did on Instagram was just kind of like come on and yeah. get 200 followers, my friends, and follow them and see what's happening in their life. I said to myself, you know what? I miss writing, 
And I know from a blogging standpoint, like I was doing 10 years ago, uh, people aren't necessarily visiting blogs in the same way that they would. So they're not visiting destinations, right? People's screen time is mostly, you know, attuned to Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever it may be. So I said, you know what? Like, I know there's people that write on Instagram, but I don't necessarily know if there's people that write maybe in the format that I am. Maybe they'll have like a, a caption with like a nice image, like a Rob Hill or a Young Pueblo, those types. Right. Is Rob Hill still around? I don't even know. But Damn, sure, you just said sure. Rob Hill Sr. Yeah, Rob Hill's a throwback, man, but he's still present for sure. Yeah. And um, why why hasn't he gotten so, like, he was such a talent. You know, I'm just trying to understand why he hasn't gotten big. And he might, and, and you know what's the funny part? He may be big just, like, on a low-key level. You know, right. he may be one of those guys that, you know, really brings in brand partnerships, really brings in whatever he needs to bring in. And it's just bringing it in on, like, a more, you know, lower-scale level, but... Um, you know, I just, I just kind of started writing about this stuff and what ended up happening was just people started really connecting with it and, um, you know, doing, you know, sending me like long ass messages in my DMs, um, and, you know, audience grew and, um, it got to a place where, um, you know, I, I, it's, it's interesting. It got to a place where I remember, I think after the Dykeman one or maybe something I wrote about my dad. Like, I saw, and I don't really care about followers, but it got to, like, it went from, like, 500 to, like, 4,000 sure. overnight. Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, you know, a lot of people were reposting. Yeah, a lot of you people know? were reposting. Dominican writers also support you, and they have very loyal, uh, you know, I don't want to say fan base followership. Yeah. It, was, it was a great article, and it was timely, you know, like, when, when you, you know, because time for a lot of these articles is key. It's key, yeah. And and, and and you were the first one to actually like blow it up. Like yeah. nah, nah, like you you guys out there are full of shit right now and I'm gonna tell you why. <laughs> no, yeah. I appreciate it. And I think, you know, what, what what really kind of you know, from a personal perspective, what really kind of fucked me up with it was that I was sort of like and I think people I think everyone kinda of gets into this trap. I'm sure you at some point did as well. Right? And I, I got to a place where I was like, damn, like I wrote this and I went overnight from like five to four thousand. Mm. Like, do I need to write every fucking day now, every week now? Yeah. You know, and I and I really started like self examining myself and I was like, yo, if I do that, like I'm not really doing it in the way that I'm right. being authentic, right? Yeah. And um I really kinda like snapped myself out of that really quickly because um I knew it wouldn't be authentic. And I started realizing this. I started realizing like there were two sides of the aisle, right? There was one person that I remember telling me, you need to be more busy on Instagram because people want to read your shit. Mm. And then one other person said, which I completely agree with, and this is the route that I went on, they were like, no one's waiting to read your shit. But when you do publish your shit, people will read it. Right. That's the difference, right? right? So like, if you fall into the trap of feeling like you need to write every week about every issue that's going on in the news or every issue that's going on in DR then you're not really going to be authentic about it and you're going to feel bombarded and you're going to yeah. feel inundated. Um, so at that point, I just really started kind of like writing from... I, I continued to just kind of write for myself. And I remember when I posted my last article a few days ago, um, I, I, I looked at like the timestamp for the Sammy Sosa one that I wrote and it was from like September. Mm. And there was like not even like a flinch from me. I wasn't like, damn, like I haven't written in three months. Mm. Um, I felt good about it, you know. And, and, and I think, not to say that it's advice because I'm not like trying to like spit games to anyone, but it's more so just like don't fall prisoner to whatever you feel your audience is. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, you know, just, just deliver to, you know, if you have an audience, when you feel you need to deliver to your audience. And that's really it.
You know what? That, that has me thinking. I know you said that you started writing for the community college, um, doing journalism for the school. But do you recall your first attempt at really writing something? Like maybe yeah. a love letter to a young John? Yeah, I mean, you know what's crazy, man? Like, and it's interesting you say that. Like, I used to be nasty with the blog uh, posts. Nasty with it. Pen Griffey over here. <laughs> I used to be high with them. And maybe that was kind of like my first foray into it, but... How I, young were you when you first wrote like, your love letter? like six, six no, seven. seventh grade. Six, oh, I'm about to say it, like... Definitely not six, but... Six, what was grade. the response, man? I don't think there was a response. Really? Man. Yeah, so that was an L, but, you know... Yeah, she, she's that regretting was, that, that now. You, that she's listening now, she's regretting it. That was get you the Ws eventually, right? <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I, I think that was probably the first time... I think everyone tries to rap, right? Yeah. Like, I think you grow up in the inner city, you, you try to rap naturally because it's the dominant part of the culture, at least from like a from a visibility standpoint. For sure. Um, but yeah, um, that, that was probably my first foray. Gotcha. And um, now going back to um, when, when you talked about your father and um, just like being critical of conscious about the culture and checking the pulse, you know, whether... You feel that something should be um, mentioned or referenced in regards to race, in regards to you know anything that you that you feel is fucked up. I really like the fact that you also bring into light in your writing that you know we should also look at our elders through a holistic lens. And I got that message when you spoke about your father, and when you spoke about your father, you spoke of him as someone that was talented, very smart, but. You know, carrying the same story that many Dominicans carry when they get to this country is that they have to start from scratch. You know, while maybe in, in the Dominican Republic they were professionals, they were educated, yeah. doctors, lawyers, and then they come here and then they have to like take up a job like driving a taxi cab like yeah. your father did. Sure. We don't think about what that makes that person, you know, yeah. as far as, yeah, feel, as far as uh, that can bring on a, a midlife crisis at the age of 40. 30. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, was that what you saw with your dad? I mean, I think, you know, similar to your last episode when, when you know, when you were talking about Apollo and my dad is, is definitely like an emotional, emotional thing for me. But, um, you know, my, you know, when I think about Dominican dads, right, like Dominican dads have a real stereotypical rap, right? Like you have a family here and you have a family in Mocha, you have a family mm -hmm. in Guay, right? A secret one or whatever. And, you know, I grew up in a family where the men were all present, and I was really, really lucky. Right. You know, deals, whatever, you know, cousins, whatever it may be. And my dad was always present, you know, so even, even like, my closest friends, their dads are, like, there. So I didn't have what, I, you know, people tend to call the stereotypical Dominican mm -hmm. dad experience, yeah. whether it's from, like, a woman's perspective or whether it's from a daughter's perspective or whether it's from a son's perspective, right? And... You know, my dad, like I said, really reclusive, really quiet, but my dad worked for, you know, Radio Wado in Santiago when he was um when he was growing up and he was like the number two in line, right, to the to the next person who I forget his name, and he was next up, but the opportunity to come to the US came up, right? And it was really kind of like balancing, you know, a better financial future versus a bet on a dark-skinned guy running mm. a major radio station in Santiago, right. right? Yeah. 
and he went to the U.S., right, and he came to the U.S., and he obviously couldn't get the same opportunities due to the fact that, you know, he didn't speak English, due to the fact, you know, his race, and he just immediately took the job that can, you know, provide for him, right? Mm -hmm. And when he got here, he got here eight years before he met, you know, my mom, and then he met my mom, and, you know, he just kind of continued the same route. And when I was growing up, you know, and I was, you know, I think in my mid-20s, and I was like, you know, accomplishing, 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 and I was in journalism, right? I would always go to him and talk to him, and um, <clears throat> you know, it, it was it was hard. Yeah, take your time, brother. You know, I mean, I think there were some times where, you know, he was proud. And, you know, I think there were times where, you know, and, and I really thought this at that point, and I, and I still believe it, but I reframed it in my mind because I think it was the right reframing. Not because for my, you know, mind, but I think it's the truth. And there were times where I felt he was jealous. You know, and that's that's the only way I could look at it. Mm. I was like, I know you were in communications, even though you didn't tell me much about it. I knew you were in journalism in some respects. Um, and there were times where it's not like he was pushing me away, but he wasn't trying to hear it. You know what I mean? And not trying to hear it on some, like, saying something to me, but sort of like, all right, you know, cool, you know? Um and I think I got to a place where, like, I was like, damn, like, I ain't going to tell you nothing, you know? And um, and as time went on, he just started telling me about, like, his struggles, mm -hmm. you know, and how he dealt with race and how he dealt with, like, people thinking he wasn't talented enough, right? Like, my dad stood up in front of, like, a auditorium in Santiago in front of, like, 90, 120 people, and was maybe like two or three people that were picked mm. to be like a radio station intern or a fellow, right? And I think when when you have the opportunity to come to the U.S. for a better life, you know, it may not be that hard of a decision, but it still sticks with you. And I think additionally, the fact that he was riding in a taxi and listening to the radio all day mm. probably fucked with him, you know what I mean? And, all the time. And that's just being real. And, right. Um, you know, I think sometimes... You know, I think sometimes we look at our parents and we really talk about our parents from like, a, you know, they provided. Right. Right. And we, um, we only make them that. Yeah. Right. You know? They're Man. more than that, you know, like. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I listen, I, know, I got you. Parents, you know, our parents had their own dreams, you know. What will my mom be yeah. if she was born in 1984? What will my dad be if he was born in 1984? And we really kind of like minimize our parents to the place where, you know, it's just like, oh, they provided for us, this, that, and the other, you know. But, you know, how much shit that you gone through, that your parents gone through, that you yeah. don't know about? How many yeah. times did they get their heart broken? Yeah. How many times were they sick in their room? You know, so like when they, when they see you going through a heartbreak, you know, they may never tell you about the shit that they went through with a guy or a girl. You know, when they see you going through career struggles, they may never tell you about the shit that they went through. 
You know what I'm saying? And like, we just we just minimize our parents to that. But but our parents are our parents aren't finished products. They're growing just like us, mm. right? Like yeah. My dad's 67. 20 years ago, there were things probably from like he was probably a moderate, and now he's a full blown liberal on all issues. You know what I'm saying? And 20 years ago, I would never think that of him. But we strip our parents of growth, mm. right? We really do strip our parents of the ability to grow. And we really do strip our parents of the ability to kind of, not the ability, but more so really the ability to, to like tell their story. Like, yeah. and, and I think it's really important for all of us to really kind of talk to our parents about their lives, you know? And I remember, and I'll say one thing. Man. I remember my dad told me, my dad was talking to me about that, and um, and he said to me, I, like, kept crying. And this wasn't long ago. This was, like, six, seven months ago, right? And um, when I wrote that, and he said to me, Tú sabes, alguna cosa mejor se quedan, tú sabes, callado. He didn't want to talk about it no more. And in my head, I'm still like, nah, I'm going to pull this shit out of you. But I realized at that point, that shit is a hard conversation for him and when he wants to have that conversation with me he'll have it you know what i mean but like sometimes we look at our parents as their as their occupation Mm -hmm. and it's not that man yeah our parents could have been so much more if they were born you know in in a place where allowed them to be their true selves and their full selves yeah i think about that all the time if my mother was born in 1981 you know she probably would have been top executive somewhere like she's the hardest working woman i know uh doesn't allow herself to get too down um multitasker um so i think about that you know i think about that all the time and you know it's ironic that you know we're talking about parents and we're talking about your father uh yesterday i actually uh, called her to ask her if um i had any issues with add growing up because I feel like sometimes, like, you know, I haven't been diagnosed, but I yeah. feel like sometimes, like, I need to, like, work double time to focus, yeah, yeah. you know? And maybe it's because I'm, a, you know, uh, you know, entrepreneur and I got the podcast going and I have other things that are, that are happening. Um, but as I asked her these questions, um, you know, she let me into her world and her experiences watching me grow up as a child, and which led to um, having to find out that my father was going to pass away within months after being uh, diagnosed with cancer, um, and how she had to like deal with it, and um, and she uh, was telling me this, and I'm like, but you were younger than what I am right now. Yeah. Imagine sleeping with someone in the same bed knowing that that person is going to pass away in a few months. What kind of a, what kind of strength is that? Absolutely. I don't think I can possess that right now. Mm-hmm. And you know and I'm not sure when your mom got married at what age, but you know my mom got married at 18. Mm-hmm. My dad was 25, right? And you look at that today and it's a crime. You look at that back then, it's whatever, right? It's yeah. just society, right? Um, and this is not like downgrading my parents yeah. in any way. Oh, bro, bro, you don't even want to talk about my parents. <laughs> guess guess where my father met my mom? You told me. At a beauty pageant. She was one of the contestants mm-hmm. at a beauty pageant. Mm-hmm. Her age, 16 years old. Yeah. My father was a judge. 
My father was 40 years old, 24 years older than my mom. That's my father. And that was the era. That was the era. That was the era. Whatever we may think of it, that was the era. All right, don't get it twisted. My grandmother did not allow that to happen at that time, <laughs> but they, they met years after in New York mm-hmm. when my mother was of age. And it's but, an excellent point that you bring up about your mom and, you know, what you could potentially envision her doing mm-hmm. if, she was grow- if she grew up in a different era. You know, and, and it goes as deep as, like, even thinking of, like, you grow up with your parents and you see your parents go through shit. Mm-hmm. But would they stay together in modern society? Would your mom stay with your dad in modern society? Would your dad stay with your mom in modern society? Mm-hmm. Right? There's this there's this push or there's this like belief that you got to work it out. Yeah. You could be the most non-religious person or the most religious person. Right. But the belief in society is what's on this one I see. Yeah. Or whatever it may be, right? But you wonder, like, how different would your parents be if they grew up today? Right. How long would they stay together? Would they split ways, right? So there's so much from, like, not just, like, an ambition level, but also from, like, an independent thinking level that they were stripped of Mm -hmm. that could potentially be different today. Yeah, yeah. And also, we have to add the element of, you know, during the 70s and and working its way up to the 80s, both people, both partners started working, you know, in this culture, in American culture. Um, So that also throws a wrench Mm -hmm. in in the relationship because, you know, especially within the Dominican culture, but like in many cultures, men were the ones that were out there and they were working and they were, you know, the providers and, and they took pride in that. They not only took pride in that, they made sure that they enjoyed the privilege of being the only provider. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. so they felt that they that gave them the green light to not be full fully present yeah. individuals in the household. So as long as they bring in the money, they didn't have to worry about cleaning. They didn't have to worry about raising, meaning like talking to your kids, you know, emotionally investing in your kids, mm-hmm. cooking, all of that. So now with with the new era, you know, we have Women that are out there doing their thing, super independent, graduating at higher rates, you know, and they don't need your ass. Like, you have to bring something else to the table. So now it becomes like we're in an era or we've been in an era for some time where men have had to look themselves in the mirror and ask themselves, what do I really bring of value? You know, And, and that could be humbling for some, but, you know, and I like it. You know, what's interesting, too, is like... You know, when you think about, one of the things I really want to write about is Dominican dating, mm. right? Because I think the, the main issue with Dominicans and dating... I talked to Angie about that, by the way. Angie, yeah. Yeah, and I got and I got to think about Dominican dating. So, hear me out, right? Yeah, yeah. So, like, I think one of the main things, and, and specifically growing up uptown where it's all Dominican, um, and you grew up on the west side of Harlem, mm-hmm. 137 and 140, yeah. 157, which is all Dominican, yeah, yeah. basically, right? So it's the same thing is that we don't we don't necessarily have a place to find each other. Mm. And I think we don't necessarily have a place to find each other because every major establishment that's opened by Dominicans is the same. So if I go to Dykeman Bar or if I go to Mama Juana on some like, you know, I just want to have fun. Right. There could be seven girls decked out that are beautiful. Right. But in my head, I'm making an assumption about all of them. Right. But three of the seven 
could have PhDs, right. masters, bachelors, yeah. be doctors, be lawyers, be whatever. But I'm making an assumption of all of them. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, they're making an assumption of, of us. Of you, right. Right? So they may not... So I think what, what Dominicans on some level are missing, young Dominicans, is the belief to see success in each other. Mm. And I think that translates to dating life, right? So if you find a Dominican couple that really, like, finds each other, it's usually through a friend. Um, lucky enough, you get on a, 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 on a dating website. But I think the main issue is, is that when you go to Dominican neighborhoods, we all have the same issues. You get a de todo, right? But in those environments, they're not conducive to sitting down with someone and actually talking Bro, to them. I 100% agree with you and on that. that's the problem with Dominican dating. It's almost like the ownership of these businesses are just pushing a specific type of brand, which is you come here, you you're paying high prices and it's to look good and or you know whatever like that vibe as opposed to like no this is a chill spot you know i think apartment 78 apartment 78 was was a rare gem that filled that void there were no vip sections you know the the people came as they were um you know very inclusive and i don't think dominican clubs indictment lounges restaurants and indictment they don't give off that inclusive vibe okay. and i've always said that about the culture 100 percent agree 100 percent agree and i think jose was the only real person that was able to kind of accomplish that right. shout out and to it, jose and it hasn't been able to be replicated and i think the main thing is this and we you know maybe not me and you um even if we you know attended those spaces in whatever era that we did the reality is is that on some level we all are to blame because we all patron the end the, the establishments on some level right and i think additionally what ends up happening is that you have there's business owners indictment that are dominican there's pop and poor mm-hmm. which is a regular spot. yeah shout out to pop and poor yeah. dominican owned by a woman mm-hmm. and you know her name i don't know her name yeah um but, but i want because i think she's related to uh mariela or angie from dominican writers from dominican writers yeah. so that's an excellent business mm-hmm. And a business being successful is a business being successful, but I'm sure if there were more Dominicans in there, I'm not sure if there are enough, but I know at some point there was a belief that there weren't enough, enough Dominicans patronizing the place in the way that they were patronizing Don Coqui, Mama Juana, mm-hmm. El Sol, or whatever it may be, yeah. right? And I think that's, we need to find each other. Yeah. We, we just haven't found each other. Like, we find each other on IG and all this other stuff, but like, that's Instagram, right? But I think there needs to be a place, and, and this is what our old, this is what our parents were excellent about, and that generation was excellent about. They were able to find places where they were able to carve out and create a space where they were like-minded individuals. Mm. That doesn't mean you're exclusionary, but the people that are in there are in there. There was a bookstore in Dagman called Caliope. Caliope was probably like the premier Dominican bookstore on made in America at that point. It was literally the size of like, I don't even know, your smallest kitchen, right? Right. And everyone that was in there, it was a taxi driver, there were lawyers, there were this, there were that, men and women, and they would go in there and they would literally talk about books all fucking day. Mm. Right? And I think what's happening right now is that Dominicans do not have that space to really sit down, meet each other, and not necessarily talk about issues or converse or anything like that. 
but see that there's men up from across the table and there's women from across the table that you have a lot of common you have a lot in common with and, and you could be with. I've only seen that in one location. Where? One or two locations, different types. Yeah. I mean different owners, same same product, same service. Yeah. Cigar shops. I mean, cigar lounges. Cigar lounges, yeah. Because, you know, because it's catered. It's that type of vibe. It's that type of vibe. And, you know, the typical cigar smoker is, is a person that wants to have a good, you know, good conversation while they're smoking a cigar. And, and that was the beauty of Apartment 78 in the sense that it wasn't a cigar lounge per se. But when I was growing up in Dykeman, all my friends, I thought, were like the only smart Dominican dudes I knew mm. because I didn't know anyone else. Yeah. And when I walked outside, it's not what I saw. Mm -hmm. So when Apartment 78 came, it was like, yo, I met this dude, I met this dude, I met this girl, I met this girl. And I was mind blown because I'm like, yo, there's Dominicans that like are forward thinking. Yeah. This, that, and the other. Go to like, college, go graduate, to college, graduate, masters, whatever. And yeah. the same thing that they would sit down and tell me was that, yo, I, I never thought I'd met some, meet someone like you or I never thought I'd meet someone like you. For sure. And that was the beauty of it. But we don't necessarily have that space, mm -hmm. right? And I really do believe, like, the only way to really, not the only way, but the, the, the way that I've seen Dominican couples get together is through that. And, and you know, we talk a lot about, like, <laughs> you know, Dominican, being Dominican from, like, how we can be better standpoint, Right. But being Dominican is fucking great. Yeah. Like, it's such a great, great thing. And, like, I'll give you an example. Like, I remember my first girl was um, was half black, half white, right? Um, great girl. Cultural disconnect like a motherfucker, mm. right? And that ended that, right? And I remember when I dated my ex, who was Dominican, it was like... Like dating your best friend, mm. you know, because every like little thing mm -hmm. that you kind of, it, it, like... it could be unspoken. Yeah. And it's the same thing with my current girl. Mm. It's like, there's just Dominican things. And I'm not saying, oh, pro-Dominican, everyone yeah. date Dominican. Yeah. It's not that, but it's like. It feels like home. It feels like home. And, and, and that's another part of like, you know, when, when kind of people will say, oh, you're dating a light-skinned girl. I'm like, yo, but like. I get it, and if you want to knock me for it, and you want to say that I'm still a self-hater and all that other stuff, you know, knock yourself out. I can't control what you think, but the reality is, is that for the majority of my life, I've wanted a Dominican woman, because the Dominican women in my family have been exceptional fucking women, mm. you know what I mean? And I wanted something like that. Yeah. Know, not exactly like that, but something like that. And when you have someone that's pretty much the same culturally on a lot of levels, um... It's just really satisfying. You know, that that's interesting that you say that. Um so your 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 girlfriend is Dominican. Okay, all right. So my girlfriend is not Dominican. Mm -hmm. She she's uh half black, half white. Okay. Um yeah. and you know, it's interesting because we connect on on many levels, but she's also very open to like learning about the Dominican culture. Which is different. Yeah. Right. It also helped the fact that she studied a semester in Ecuador and learned Spanish, right? It helps that she has rhythm. Um, <laughs> you know, I got to say that. You know, there was one thing, because I, I feel you, because Dominican culture is so vibrant. You know, we're happy people. We're affectionate people. Like, it's great. It's, yeah, bro, like, the culture is amazing. There was, there was a time after college that I was really not, I think I had dated one lovely Dominican woman, Shout out to her. I'm not going to say her name, though. And then after that, it was like 10 years or eight years of just 
dating uh, women that were not Dominican. And I must say, you know, I learned a lot about myself and the cultural expectations that I was placing on myself through the experiences with these women. It was like I realized that, you know what? Certain jokes women don't fuck with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) maybe I don't have to be that passionate when I say this. Maybe I don't have to, you know, there's a thing about Dominicans where it's like papi chulo, like, you know, the licking of the lips. Like you're LL Cool J 24 hours, seven days a week. And Mm -hmm. that doesn't fly with some people. They're like, no, like you're you're a character right now. That's what what you are. Mm -hmm. You're a Rico Suave on the beach. Yeah, and we and we embody um, what what a lot of Dominican wives and a lot of Dominican daughters dislike about their dads. It's like we 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 try to like kind of like right. push it away, right? But then it's like there's a part of us growing up that it, that is like, oh, that's the cool shit to do. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's cool to be like, yeah, the dude that can talk to this girl, but then can talk to this girl right. in five minutes and still and still know that you can get her. Right, right, right. And that's a very I don't know if that's a man thing. But I know it's a Dominican thing mm-hmm. on some levels, not yeah. all. You know? Sure, yeah. of course, of course. That's a very Dominican thing. And it's like you have to almost like let it be known. Like I can I can get you if I want. It's like authority. It's like authority. And it's, and it's so fucked up. But, um, but you know, I also, again, though I appreciate my Dominican women, I, I did see value in dating someone that... Um, you can learn from because their culture is so different. I've been blessed to be in those types of situations where I've learned about religion Mm -hmm. through the person that I was dating. I've learned about other countries. You know, I've learned about like just economics, you know, women that that were born in different financial situations that I was. Damn, man, like I really owe most of my knowledge to like women, bro. Facts. Like straight up. I I could raise my hand. And I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people out here, um, I think a lot of women are still being co-opted by men mm. who take their content and then kind of like... Mm. Talk about it. Is, Talk know? about it. And I think a lot of a lot of women out here are like, whether you're like with them, whether you're not with them, whether you're in passing, you know, I think a lot of men are like, you know, taking their learning and they're just applying. Oh, yeah. And you it know? just works. You know, it's almost like... And, I, you know, I guess, how do you put that into practice, right? When when you're, like, so familiar with women and, you know, what they're saying and how they think that all of a sudden you know that if I say this or I express this emotion, this is going to this is gonna be the response to it. And, yeah. And, you know? and, and it's interesting, right? Because I'll, I'll, I'll keep it a buck. Like, I remember telling my boy one time, and this was, like, before writing anything. Um, shit, I might have told you this. Mm. I said the easiest way to get followers on Instagram is to cater to women. Mm. Oh, so, you know, spit the shit that they want to hear. Spit the shit that they want to hear, right? And I remember saying that and going through therapy, just really exploring myself. I've written things that have been pro-women, right? I remember one of my boys being like... Nigga. Like you just trying to get exactly yeah. right, or you just trying to get yeah audience or whatever. Mm-hmm. You could usually tell though, but you can usually tell. Yeah, you know yeah, what I'm yeah. saying? And, and it and it was just it was just interesting, man. Because I feel like I feel like there's a lot of people out here who who learn from women, right. who take from women, and forget women. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then there's people that will really sit down with your ass and be like, look, like 
And I think me and you are in this boat where it's like, look, I can say a lot of pro women shit, but be ready to get get it back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because anti, not not anti. So so Claudio, this is critique, right? So this is where I'm at, right? And you know, and maybe it has to do with a couple of things, right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe what I do for you know my profession, but also, bro, I was raised. The favorite people in my life are women, man. I say that and I want to cry right now because that's how much emotion I, I have for my grandmother who, who I saw take her last breath, mm-hmm. right? And for my mother, right, who is a huge part of my life, bro. You know, just to even talk about my mother, like lately I've been having conversations with my friends about how to fully accept that they're may be a time in your life where your mother's not going to be present. You know, my mother has turned 70. I can't, I can't deal with this, so I got to talk about it. Yeah. Because, if the, you know, I'm hearing people dying at 28, that football player, heart attack. Yeah. You know, uh, another brother died from, from a heart attack. Um, a deli owner in Harlem yeah. that I used to see all the fucking time. Oh, really? He was in his early 40s, man. And here is my mother that's 70. And I, yo, bro, I worry about her all the fucking time, bro. But anyway, so my mother, hardcore, man. I'm telling you, she is, if she would have grown up in my era, she would have been a boss boss. Oh, yeah, I believe that. Like a boss boss, right? She's the first person to be like, yo, don't, don't try to victimize me, like whatever. I remember when I came home to her and I told her, mommy, you know, I'm in Buffalo or whatever. I'm in this huge class, and I'm the only person of color there. You know what she said? Ay, ya tu te muchacho. You know, all that is in your head. Like, stop it. Yes, <laughs> you're, you're the only one. Who cares what they think about you is what you think about you. Yeah. That's you know, the, that's that generational difference. That's that generational difference. My mother was like, you know, she, like, no, everything that I that I have, my life is a result of my actions. So she never really like took that that approach of like, I at one point have been a victim. I was like, no, like I had to raise two kids. Sure, poor that brother. You know, like I have to to, to raise two kids when my husband, you know, suddenly passed away, and I did it like a champ. So don't talk to me about victimization right so that's where i come from i come from a family of like hardcore women a personalities all over me man my aunts like even the women that i've dated bro Mm -hmm. the women that i've dated have all been a personality you know i cannot see a woman as anything else other than a boss right because that's what i've been experienced to so it's like a lot of the conversation when we talk about genders you know i I get kind of put off guard because I'm like, no, like women have a lot more power than what you're implying. So, so that's why, and also, you know, me being a defense attorney, you know, <laughs> I'm very pro on like looking at things both sides, both sides yeah. you know, because, you know, women, men lie, women lie, you know, yeah, and, I think, and I think that's, you know, that, that was excellent. Cause I, I feel like what's happening right now online, right? Like I, I remember when something happened uptown, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which, um, Pretty sure you're working. Mm-hmm. And um, and I got a few calls from people as if I was John Lewis or some shit. Mm-hmm. On some like, he's about to walk over to George Washington Bridge. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> what you think I should do? And, oh, there um, were many calls. There were many calls. There were many calls. There were many calls, and there were calls that were, what do you think I should say? Mm-hmm. And there were calls of like, nigga, what you gonna say? Mm-hmm. Right. So it was. Because both. you all because the of whatever, right? Because of your history, like like yeah. what you do, right? Um, and 
And I think the problem is this, and it goes back to what we were talking about with like the catering part, right? Is that <laughs> whatever, I don't give a fuck. But you can't talk shit about men online and the men that you date off of it ain't shit. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It don't make sense. Yeah. Because you it, know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's like I think a lot of people don't realize how much of themselves is not their real selves online. Mm. So yeah. it's like you choose to be vulnerable and you choose to talk shit about dudes. But if you present me this, then I'm like, Well, what you talking about? Yeah. You know, I've seen I've seen behavior from people, I'm just keeping it a buck. I've seen behavior from women. Who are the most educated, who are the most whatever, towards men that I know that are taken. Mm. Oh no, I've seen that, that. That that I'm like, yeah, you you yeah. doing this? You do yeah, so you about that life? But like yeah. when I see your 10 Instagram stories every three days, you about you women empowerment. You about that. So it's just like it's you want you wanna it's more complicated than what it seems. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Don't take things for face value. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, don't take things for face value. And you know what? People, there are out there people that are, are really aggrieved, right? But people react to that differently. Like, you just, sometimes you just don't know. And you have to sit with that. Yeah. Now, you can talk about what you do know. What you do know, yeah. What you do know. And I do know that there is a history of fuckboy shit. That that I was a part of, that my friends were a part of, we all were, you know. So so even even if a particular situation you may not know the facts to, right? It can still, you know, it's okay, you know. And I encourage you to reflect on it and be like, okay, like, all right. So what am I doing to make sure that I don't support that kind of alleged behavior? Correct. Right. And I think at the same time, like similar to, to to story we were talking about earlier, you can't invite men to spaces where you want them to talk about issues that directly affect women and then assault men for being honest about their experiences and how they're trying to get better about it. Uh, I remember I did a chat with Leo Uptown, and Leo's more of like an open... Like, I I, I tell the truth, he tells the truth, but he tells the truth maybe in a way that's a little more, like, Mm -hmm. acidic to people, right? Um, And I remember one girl jumping in like, yo, like... Like yo, let let him, let him speak because he's he's a forty plus year old dude, who just this year said to himself, "Yo, I, I got a daughter, I got a wife, whatever. I, I I'm looking at these things the wrong way." Right. So you can't you can't like besiege him for for like telling you like, "Yo, two years ago this is what I was doing. Right. Three years ago this is what I was doing. Fifteen years ago this is what I thought." You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And like. I don't think there's, like, any room. And I think the other part of it is that there's just not enough honest conversation about these things, mm-hmm. right? Like, I feel like taking that taking the angle, and I've said men are trash, and I've been trash, and I'm sure everyone's been trash at some point or another. But I think the angle of, like, taking that to the limit is, is the way to go for a lot of people. Mm. Um but it's like, look, like to me, it's like, look, I'm an open book. I, everything that you see on Instagram, we could talk about today, right? 
but I feel like there's a lot of people that are open book up until a point, and I think a lot of women are open book up until a point when it comes to men, mm. and maybe some, maybe at some points when it comes to their own interactions with men who they may allow themselves to be treated in a manner that, you know, they may not represent the same thing on right. Instagram. You know, I agree, you know, but, but I think through it all, through this tornado of like, just like narratives, right? Um, I think uh, men are, and rightfully so, are being encouraged to learn more about themselves, learn more about consent. When they start looking in the mirror, they realize like, oh shit, like I'm not a child anymore. And I can really like have my own thoughts and not be controlled by a cultural narrative, by a narrative given to me by my family, by my environment, all these arbitrary, you know, conditions, right? And, you know, once you get to that point, you realize, oh shit, this is right and this is wrong. Correct. You know, and, and sometimes it takes men to have daughters to get to that point. Um, I've gotten to that point with time because, you know, I like to read Bell Hooks mm -hmm. has had a tremendous influence on me. But also I've had like really good, you know, women friends that have like checked me. Checked you, yeah. But again, like also my interactions with women and dating women, you know, knowing what what I feel that they think is like also allowed me to like really get close to the way they view the world and, and actually value it, you know? Yeah. As far as, you know, fuckboy shit, you know, I feel like my network go out on a limb and say, you know what, I highly doubt any of my friends are forcing women to have sex with them. Agreed. Right, but that's not where we're at. But where we're at is that, are you misrepresenting the facts, your emotions? Are you misrepresenting anything for the purposes of having sex, for the purposes of having that person's body? Because... In criminal law, like if I take your wallet right now yeah. and I push you while I take that wallet, that's a robbery, that's right? A robbery. There's there's force involved, right? But if I take your wallet under false pretenses, that is still a crime. Yeah. That is still theft. Absolutely. If you look at your behavior, your interactions with women in that way, then you would find yourself still liable for some wrongdoing. But again, like dudes like you, uh, many of us thought about it, but you had the courage to write about it and also not only write about it, but, you know, really delve into like prior experiences that you've had. Right. And hold yourself accountable. Is that process like easy for you? Because I feel like holding yourself accountable and putting out all your cards out there for people to like read. Um, I feel like it's something that you have gradually become comfortable with. And it's great because that that's like you're flexing like an artistic muscle there that for a person like me who has been uh, an artist in the shadows for way too long gives me inspiration to like, yes, like it's OK to be honest in, the, in your expression, even if other people that you don't know are going to read it. It's hard. It's hard. You know, I'm in a position, you know, at the times where it's a really, really prominent position. Mm -hmm. And when I really started writing honestly. Um, what I was worried about was people who know me as work Claudio knowing me as Claudio, mm. right? And that's a really, really difficult thing on a social media platform where your profile is public and anyone can follow you. And when you post something and you get whatever, 10 likes, 100 likes, and there's 
100 people that follow you, but you don't know who 98 and 97 are, mm. right? And it really took time to keep it a buck with you. Like, I remember at the onset of me writing and, and seeing that growth, um, whenever someone from work would follow me, I'd immediately block them. And I immediately blocked them for the reason because I didn't really want them to know the real me. Mm. And I think additionally, what was more problematic for me, um, which I don't do now, but I was doing at that point, which was just this year, is that I really, st and I think a lot of people go through this, like, I got to a place when, when I got to the New York Times, I, I, I wasn't Claudio anymore. I was Claudio from the New York Times. Mm. And I felt at that point, like, from a growth level on a career from a career standpoint and also from like protecting myself from like any sort of like you know someone throwing a, a, a something in the road to make me trip because I wrote this or I wrote that um was going to affect my career and I really got to a place where I was like you know what like the African-American experience Latino experience is an experience that's special and an experience that's one of its own Right. And something that, quite frankly, white America can't understand because they may grow up in a very like straight and narrow environment. Mm -hmm. right? And not to say that minds is crooked, but more so minds is more layered. Mm. Right. And, um, you know, when I started writing on Instagram, it was a huge fear. I ain't even gonna lie. Like maybe a month ago, I blocked someone, too. And I think I'm still not there. Right. And I think one of my main battles at the moment is separating the brand from my name. Right. Because I think sometimes what ends up happening is that you become and I see this with people that are at that organization for 20, 30 years and have become people who, quite frankly, have become so protective of it being attached to their name that at the same time they become mediocre mm. and they become mediocre because when you get to a place where you're there for that long, you don't feel that they're going to get rid of you. Mm. All you feel is that you can stay and being the status quo is what you mm. can be. And for me now, um, I actually got to a place where just being open and honest about everything that I do or everything that I've done, whether it's like a gambling addiction, whether it's like what I've done with women, whether it's whatever it may be, um, has gotten to a place where um, I, I, I less look at it as an effect on me and more of like, you know, the negative effect that maybe it could have on one person reading it at the organization that I work for is not worth as much as a positive effect that it could have on someone that actually reads when right. it comes from my community. Yeah. And that's a hard place to get that's to a, because yeah. it's your paycheck, it's right. your career, and right. so many different Bro. things. And um, I'm not I'm not sitting here and telling anyone to kind of like follow that road. I'm not saying that anyone that doesn't do that, that they're wrong, right? I'm in a place right now where I'm, I'm comfortable kind of being honest about that stuff. And if I were to be brought into a room at the New York Times and people would be like, yo, my man, what you writing? Mm -hmm. You know, um, yeah. I would say, you know, what I'm writing, number one, isn't threatening anything in this organization. Right. Number two, what I'm writing is um, really the truth. And I, and I think in all my writing, and even, on, even though I may write like seven or eight times a year, what I do is center myself. And I center myself in a way that is either going to be, I grew from this, or I'm still here. Mm -hmm. And I still need to get better. And... Um, that's how I think I, I, I can relate to people, right? I don't want to be the guy that's like, oh, yeah, like, I don't I do not do no dirt. Mm -hmm, I never mm -hmm. did no dirt yeah. or whatever. Like, I, yeah. I just feel like that's disingenuous. And that's just an, a road to being uncovered.
For sure, you know for I mean? sure. You know, and I agree with that, and I also experienced that, you know, a duality that it's exists within us that, you know, for whatever reason we've been, we've been taught to suppress mm-hmm. for the sake of keeping our jobs. Um, and as an attorney, sometimes... And, and my, my Instagram has ESQ. So it's like I'm not hiding the fact that I'm an attorney. Mm-hmm. Some of the content, most of the content I would say is not law related. Correct. Yeah. Right? So people can confuse Correct, yeah. personal with law. But, you know, look, I, I'm my own boss. So that helps. Right. But also I do go through that occasional struggle where it's like where it's like, well, you know, are the people that can potentially retain me as an attorney in my follower list are they going to get confused by my personal expression and are they going to make a judgment call as to how how I perform on a professional level and yeah that's a conversation that I have with myself and a lot of the decision is based on what you just said is this going to positively affect more people than negatively affect me and 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 the reality too is like you know what I've had to come to come to grips with as a person not just at the times but even when I was at CBS or companies before that is that how much of my self-worth is tied to who I work mm, with talk about it you know what I'm saying like, talk about how it. much is it you know so like I started realizing like if I had a great day at the times I had a great day after the times yeah 6 p.m it was a great day 7 p.m my girlfriend would get the best of me my parents would get the best of me my sister would get the best of me if it was a bad day I started realizing that that bad day wouldn't just be one bad day. It would be two, three bad days until mm-hmm. they wore off and then I got back to good, right? So I think a lot of times as people of color, when you get to a position of stature or whatever it may be, sometimes we become so protectionist of what, of where we work or right. what we do. Not necessarily that we're not willing to tell the truth because I think everyone has their path, but more so you, your life becomes determined by work. Mm-hmm. We were talking about this earlier, how work can consume you to the point where you know, your day is shot if you have a bad day. Your day yeah. is great if you have a great day. And I think I got to a point at 36 where I said, you know what, I see a lot of people here who are here and I don't really think are that happy. Not because of the organization, but maybe because of their place in the right. organization. Right. right. And I'll never forget one situation that a homegirl of mine named Millie, who, who who left the Times, right? And she's a star. Social media friendly, everything that you can imagine, right? Just like a force in the space. She's an Asian woman. Right. And she left the Times at a time where she was in a great position, and everyone at that organization questioned why she left mm-hmm. and couldn't believe why she left and couldn't believe where she left to. She left to another media organization, but much smaller. And I remember thinking to myself, like, and I wasn't there yet. And I mean, I work at the Times and I'm happy, but I wasn't there in that thinking. And I saw her and I remember I sat down with her and she was like, yo, if I stay here unhappy and I act like this is the last place on earth because mm-hmm. of what the brand is, because if it's yeah. the Yankees, yeah. or if it's the Packers or the Cowboys or the Bulls of the 90s, then I'll be here forever without really feeling like I'm fulfilled. Dude. And she left. And she got the position that she wanted and she got the freedom that she wanted. And a lot of people can't really take that step. And while I don't want to leave the organization because I'm happy, I think my step is the writing. Right. And that's, I don't, I don't necessarily want to call it defiance, but it's really just kind of living my truth. Mm. You know, that's, that's powerful, man, because, uh, you know, happiness at the workplace, especially 
during these times where many of us have been separated from the workplace is a hot topic, or at least, you know, in my mind it is. I was reading this book called uh, The Tribe, you know, and I haven't finished it. I'm a few chapters in. And it's a book about culture, people, and happiness, right? And it talks about, um, or should I say, it compares the Western way of life versus uh, traditional indigenous tribes, right? It talks about how more affluent societies tend to be dramatically less happier than indigenous tribal, you know, traditions, cultures, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the theories that they came up with was uh, this theory called self-determined theory, right? Which focuses on three things. Focuses on, are you good at what you do, Mm -hmm. right? Focuses on, are you being authentic? And three, focuses on community, you know, and I think that's interesting, um, especially uh, to be a black or brown man working in a corporate structure that tends to be non-black and not brown. You know, um, where does that put you? And do we think about those things? Mm-hmm. And, you know, because I think that would answer a lot of questions, internal questions that a lot of black and brown men and women have um, who spend their lives in corporate settings Mm -hmm. and yet don't see any fulfillment like what do you think about that theory and and you know if you was to apply it to yourself now in that setting like you know i think that you feel good about what you do you know i I think i think you feel that you're you are good at what you do right do you feel that you have a community do you feel that you're being your most authentic self? And right now we're talking about this duality, yeah. which is funny because that's like almost saying that we're not being authentic yeah. in this setting. And, and, and you know what's interesting? Like I was in a, they're called ERGs, employee resource groups. So mm-hmm. employee resource groups are usually like black and New York Times, Latino and New York Times, mm-hmm. right? And I remember being in a meeting and someone telling me like, she doesn't feel like she could be her full self mm-hmm. under her manager. And to be, you know, quite honest with you, I think my experience has been different at that organization because I've had a manager who's kind of not necessarily allowed me to be my full self, I think, but more so just kind of allowed me to be, mm. you know, and I feel like, yeah, sure. Am I the same Claudio that I am on Dykeman? No, I'm not. Right. And I don't think anyone is in, in totality. But I think I've gotten to a place where I feel so like I am enough of myself. And I think that it's it's a dual thing. I think, number one, it's like who you work for. But I think, number two, it's how confident you feel in your position within yeah. that organization. Yeah. Right? Very and important. I think when you get to a place where you feel really confident, like, I don't feel the way I did in 16, 17, and 18. 19 and 20, I was like, I, like, I'm important here. And whether, like, and how that sounds makes it sound like, oh, like, I'm important to them. But I, I look at it more so like I've really built built my rep here and now I wanna be me. Mm-hmm. You know, not I'm important to them, so now I can't I still can't be me. Right. Right. And I feel like I've had management that's allowed me to be that. Um, I think I'm in the process of the authentic part. You know, because I think you know, I think a lot of what ends up happening in, in corporate America is that um it's a pedigree thing. 
right? If you didn't go to the right college, mm. if you don't have the right network, if you're not the most palatable, right? So if you're an African-American, you're a Latino, you're an Afro-Latino, whatever it may be, to navigate those circles, you really got to re- walk a tightrope on a daily basis. And you, um, and I think the most important thing that I think has at least been for me is that I'm a big student of studying people. So like when I sit down with you, I really, really try to understand who you are. But I think you know, from like a corporate perspective, I try to understand who you are in a way to kind of take it, make it from my advantage, mm. right? So I know how to interact with you and I know how to interact with you and I know how to interact with you, right? And I know how to like kind of keep that in my mental role with that. Right. But um, I think it's not as easy for anyone else. And that's, and that's not up to the person in, in reality. That's really up to the culture of that company and top down, right. really making it an environment for those people to kind of be, for, for people in general of color, men or women, um, whatever it may be, to feel comfortable in that, in that place. Right. You know, you would think that maybe, or should I ask you this? Because, you know, you're, you're fortunate where uh, you felt that your, the duality of who you was Okay, you can say appreciated, but the the duality of who you of who you are was allowed to roam free because of who was your direct supervisor, Correct, right? Yeah. Um, do you find that there is a culture from your experience working in New York Times where um, there is a concentrated effort towards accepting people's dualities? you know, post-pandemic, corporations had to, like, come to grips with the fact that, oh, shit, I have black employees, and they are suffering right now dealing with this whole George Floyd, Breonna yeah, Taylor yeah. bullshit, addressing something that they never had to address before. And But I would see that as, or I would hope that that's an opportunity to add texture to that employee-employer relationship. Correct. Um, Have you seen that happen? I mean, I think every organization has taken their stance on it. And, you know, whether, you know, whether that organization is, like, committed to it or whether that organization was committed to it up until the end of the Breonna Taylor case, right. um, you know, really depends, right? But I do feel like, I actually do think, like, if you take away the George Floyd situation, if you take away the Breonna Taylor situation, I think from a diversity perspective, if those things didn't happen, the the pandemic would have worsened it. And I actually still think the pandemic has worsened it. You know why? Because, like, I feel like when you're working in white organized structures, right, white corporate structures, when diversity is talked about, diversity is something that's a meeting on the calendar or diversity is talked about Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, right? Mm-hmm. So the, more, the, the most people that you see of color are at work, but you don't necessarily interact with those right. people outside of work. Right. So if work looks like United Colors of Benetton, but brunch and brunch and Fort Green looks like West Virginia, you're not about diversity. Right. Right. As an individual. Right. So diversity has to be something that on some level is a lifestyle for a white person. Right. It's not to say that you have to say, all right, you know, this year I'm going to make a goal of getting three Latino friends and three black friends. But your circle has to be to a place where it's diverse. If your circle is not diverse, 
your team is not going to be diverse, right? Your team will be diverse when you have five candidates that come in and the second candidate is a black person, black man or black woman. And even if you like that first white guy or white woman more, you're going to hire that person because of HR saying, you know what, you need to have a little more diversity on your team, Right. right? Right. So the reality is, is that until you get to a place where you're not going to Claudio and saying, hey man, like, do you know a black engineer? You know what I'm saying? That you could recommend me? Do you know a black SEO person? Do you know a black styles expert? Do you know right. a black sports expert? Right? Until you can get to a place where you can stop saying, as a white person, I couldn't find qualified candidates, then you're not about diversity. Then you're not about you're diversity. You're just not about it because right. there's Because that, that's interesting because it has plenty. to, because you have to be about diversity, now, not only in the workplace, but in your personal life. You can't, it can't, you can't wanna, separate, yeah, you can't right, separate. that's interesting, that's the you first time. Separate. And I think what the pandemic has allowed for is that when you're not able to have a black person in front of you, or a Latino person in front of you, an Asian person in front of you, and really kind of sit down with you one-on-one and tell you how they really feel about how the organization is run, how diversity is structured at this company, whatever it may be, then when you're having it on Zoom, it ain't the same. Right. It just ain't the same because there's some, there's a level, I feel, and I'm in Zooms and Google Hangouts all day. There's a level of disconnect and there's also a level of distrust. That's interesting because I thought that, you know, Zoom would make people or encourage more folks people. more like familiar with their actual co-workers yeah. like now you're in that person's living room mm-hmm. like you see in that biggie smalls portrait that yeah, they have yeah, to yeah. the left of the screen right and and you would think that oh okay like this is where you live oh like where do you live and you know you would think that because the person is in his living room the conversation would be a bit more casual therefore yeah. a bit more like i don't i don't want to have brunch with you on 14th and 8th, I want to have brunch on with you on 207. Mm, interesting. So come up here. Yeah. You know, if you're my manager, if you're my friend, if you're my coworker, whatever you may be, come up here, you know, and let, let me know how you feel. You know what I'm saying? Like, and, and it goes for coworkers too. And it goes back to the point that I talked to you about with like accepting people on my Instagram that are work friends. I have two white girls at work who I love to death, love me to death. Like we would be friends at 80, 90, even if we didn't work together. Mm. One of them has a black husband, right? And I still wasn't accepting her on the shit. Mm. Like, for, for for years, she literally was like, let me get on it, let me get on it, let me get on it. And I'm like, nah, it's all good. Like, it's not going to happen. And um, so, you know what? Fuck it. Like, she wants to be my friend on Instagram. Like, here it is. Here's everything. This is who I am. This is who I am. Full like, Claudia. This is not who you think. Right, It's right. not what you see. This is not what you're used to, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, And I remember her telling me before I accepted her, like, Whoever you are, whoever you are. Right? <laughs> but did you have that conversation with her? Did I, you tell her? I Look, did. I did. I warning. Did. I did actually have that conversation with her. I was like, who I am off work is not who I am. But she was married to a black man, so. She was, and, and despite that, I was still like, right. I don't know. You know what I mean? And 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 she follows me now. She's right. probably one of two or three people at that organization that follow me, right? right? And um, I was still like, and even at this point in my head, and maybe this is this is on me. I'm still like, I'm sure she thinks. Yeah, you know that's funny because I have some white, you know, some really good white uh, yeah. colleagues, uh, you know, good friends of mine yeah. that that follow me, and uh, and sometimes when I you know go into my rants, which is not all the time, yeah, but, it's not, yeah. but you know, it's after the fact. I'm like, oh, I wonder how uh, that person feels about about yeah. what I just said, you know, but. You know, again, but like during this pandemic, I've had to sit down with myself and acknowledge 
who I am outside of a structure that, you know, I, I would be considered as, as other as far as like, you know, different cultural experience, the way that I look. I don't know. It, it's made me realize that uh, there's a lot of like self-confliction or at times like existential angst that um, comes from me existing in this American paradigm yeah. where um, I have to consider other people's views of who I am, yeah. you know, and, um, and yeah, man, and, you know, and, and I've internalized this sometimes even subconsciously. And um, I aspire to be who I vision myself to be, yeah. right? Not what others and, you know, and, and what this process has kind of made me realize or have honed my focus towards is an effort to be more uh, leaning or taking the steps towards personal liberation yeah. as opposed to a seat at the table. Yeah. And I think for so much, for so many of us, because we were, we feel that we were never invited to the table or um, we have to prove yeah. to everyone that we belong at the table, that we lose so much time and energy Focusing on that table. I think the biggest the biggest thing that any person of color needs to get over in any type of situation where they're in a white power structure is I feel like once they get to the point where they feel they don't have to prove anything, yeah. It's all it, it's it's every, and that and that comes at a different time for everyone else. Um you know, we're 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 forced. Once we once we become eighteen unless we go to a PWI or HBC unless we go to HBCU. Yeah. We're literally forced mm -hmm. to be diverse. Yeah. Right? Like, we can grow up in the environments we grow up in, but once we get to college, we're in, we're the minority. Mm -hmm. We're not the mi majority anymore. Once we get to corporate America, we're the minority, right? In a way that they never have to encounter that. And, 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 f and that's why I always say diversity, at the end of the day, is not... It's something that they need to get to the place where they're like, you know what? Like, my commitment is to changing my circle around mm -hmm. and maybe not changing but adding to my circle right right and um the proving thing is so hard you get to a place where it's like you can you can accomplish everything you can accomplish in a in in a predominantly white institution and you still feel like it's not enough mm -hmm. and you still feel like you need a you need to like tiptoe yeah. and um you know i think I think that's the one, once you feel like you're overproving anything to anybody, specifically in a white institution, um, at that point, it's, it's really sky's the limit from yeah. like a personal liberation perspective. Right, too, because, um, you know, the legal industry, for the most part, is yeah. mostly white, you know, and, and, but, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a part of, and I'm not saying that I, I walk into court just thinking about this, but it, it occurs. Like, okay, like, I don't look like most attorneys in the courtroom right now. So, you know, with that comes this added pressure because I feel like, okay, like, I have to let them know that I belong here. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, like, I can, be used, I can be using that mental energy to just become better, to be authentic. Mm -hmm. And you know what? And with that comes confidence a lot more confidence yeah. because it goes back to that self-determining theory right because mm -hmm. yeah. now you feel like you're authentic yeah 
And that's when you're really on your shit. And that goes to what you just said. And look, man, we were talking about the chili class earlier. Like, you know, blackness as a whole, you know, isn't just constricted to America. It's mm-hmm. constricted to everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, so when I'm teaching a class in Chile with 30, 35 white Chileans mm-hmm. on the screen, to your point, when you walk into a courtroom, you're like, shit, I need to, like, you know, be my best self. Like, sometimes I feel that way when I'm teaching, right? And and I think the never-ending thought process of a person of color is wondering what they're thinking, mm-hmm. right? And you develop your own thought process of what they're thinking about you, oh, Look at this black guy thinking he knows everything about this, but I really know more than him. Or look at this black guy thinking he's a good teacher, but he sucks as a teacher. And, like, you almost try to, like, (laughs) diagnose them and their racism, even if it hasn't come out. You know what I'm saying? And it's just like... Bro, you're wearing so many multiple hats? You're wearing so many multiple hats, and it's like... Yo, if I if I went to work at a news organization in Chile, I would literally be the only dark-skinned person in that whole building. You know, I've been working out a specific plan, right? And, you know, and now, you know, I'm not there as far as like the final edit of this plan, right? But it's really about liberation. That's the focus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would imagine, uh, you know, if you were in that situation where you were to take a position in Chile, Mm -hmm. uh, you would have to like go through some major, unless you're already there, some major psychological transformation (laughs) <laughs> that the result would be, I don't give a fuck if I'm looking different. I don't give a fuck if I find different things that are funnier. I add value. I know who I am. And motherfuckers is going to like it and they're going to respect it. If they don't like it, I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck. And but that's, that's a step. Dude, so how can we get there, bro? I mean, I'm working on my shit, but, you know, maybe we can... Yeah, I mean, look, my, my goal, <laughs> and I'm... And, and I think I got to this goal a year ago. Okay. Right. My goal is to run a major news organization in this country mm. for a reason, right? For selfish reasons and also for like what I do is not typical journalism, but what I do is influences journalism, I would say, mm. on some level, right? So I want to get to a place where I can run the Wall Street Journal, I can run the LA Times, I could run the New York Times, I could run the Charlotte Observer, I don't know, whatever the fuck, right? Right. I've gotten to a place of belief with that, that I can do that. And I think I always believed that, right? Even when I was a little younger, uh, but it wasn't maybe 100% cemented. And I think the only way to really get there is, number one, through through belief, mm-hmm. right? Through, like, full-on belief. I think number two is really just not giving a fuck what people think. Yeah. And that's hard. Yeah. That's yeah. hard for me. I'm sure on some levels it's hard for you. Um, because when you grow up in an environment where you're, taught to kind of like tippy-toe around every person and kind of like cater to them Mm -hmm. it's very hard to get to a place where you do the complete opposite and say i don't give a fuck what your white ass or this ass or that ass thinks about what decision i made you're gonna have to deal with it of course right and 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 i think that whiteness just isn't it's just not restricted to america it's restricted to the globe yeah right because that's the power structure right but i think it really has to do with number I think obviously we can we can always have the the conversation about access, right? And people giving you that opportunity, but you can get that opportunity and you can fall flat on your face yeah. if you try to like, because they're gonna smell blood if yeah. you if you are the if type there's that's fear like, if there's yeah. fear they're gonna smell it yeah you know smell it. so if you if you get to a place where you're like I'm unapologetically 
Um, I mean, I mean, I think Trump just showed us that you Trump. can be unapologetic and and at least gain some success if you really truly believe in the shit that you believe in. I, I really do believe, like, and, and this is probably an unpopular opinion, but I think any person that gets into power that's a person of color um, doesn't necessarily need to mimic him, but on some level you can learn. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because um, and, and normally I'm, we've I'm, been taught. Trust me when I tell you, I'm in no agreement with anything I have. No, like we need to celebrate and encourage and birth more mavericks in the culture. Exactly. I totally agree. I feel like if we have, I read a story about this guy that worked at UBS in Sweden, the first black dude, right, that ran a European Swiss financial bank right um brilliant but they were cutting him under like you wouldn't believe because they were like ain't no black man gonna run a swiss a swiss based um financial bank right but he ran it right did a great job you know they got rid of him right for whatever reason right not just i really do believe like if you get into a position of power Right. And and look, it's hard to really say this because everyone has their own individual ambitions and their own individual individual goals. The more not give a fuck you are, mm-hmm. I really do believe like fuck how it's gonna affect this sounds total reverse. Fuck how it's gonna affect what another white company may do in terms of thinking about hiring a black CEO or or, or, or a woman CEO, think more about what it's going to do for the people in your community and how they view you for actually taking the stances Mm. that you did, right? Um, So on one end, it may defeat a lot of what the community may want to accomplish from an advancement level. Right. But I really do think from an empowerment level, it shows you like, Shit, I'm the boss. You made me the boss. Mm-hmm. So now you deal with You deal the with boss. the boss. In the same way you right. deal with everyone else's yep. boss. Yep. And the way you got rid of them, if you get rid of me, you get rid of me. And you get rid of me quicker than you got rid of them, you got rid of me quicker than them. But when I leave that company, I could say it was because of race. I could say that I didn't get a fair shot. But the one thing that I could leave that company with is saying that, yeah, I think it's got the full me. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep, that's and it. Like, and like, I encourage anyone when they get into that position of power to get the full you. And 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 it's just, I'll give you an example. I was in I was in therapy this morning, and I was I, I was talking to my therapist, and she was, and I was telling her, you know what? Like, a lot of times at the times people come to me to to make certain decisions, and there's people on my team that I wish would naturally just step up and make them, mm-hmm. right? And I think being a manager of a mostly white team um, and then I think on another layer white women uh, makes me very weird about telling people what to do Mm. because as a black man Afro-Latino whatever I'm too concerned with being liked Mm. yep right it takes up too much mental real estate there's a clash with being liked and there's a clash with being authoritarian right right Right. And I, I got to a place where I told one of my coworkers and I said, like, hey, I need you to be a little more authoritative. 
I actually want them to, on some level, forget a, forget I even exist and go to you, mm. right? That would that would make me look great because you're you're the person, right? And you're on my team. But through actions, I thought that she wasn't necessarily built for that. But then I asked her and told her, and she said, "Shit, I'll do it. I'm more for it. I want the responsibility." And that's what we go through. We go through this like self-examination phase where we judge people. And sometimes we do accurately. And we get in our heads. And all along, I could have told her, shit, you should do this. And she could have taken the baton. Mm. Right? So it's really about getting to a place where it's like, I'm the boss and I got to own it. And whatever comes with it, comes with it. Yeah, man. And and do you think, you know, I know I've kept you here for a long time, man. But, sure. I, but this is interesting, man. Um, do you think that is like the common mistake or just a mistake that you see a lot of people of color make in corporate settings where, you know, they come with, you know, because that's a prejudice, right? Where you have this preconceived notion of mm-hmm. what people think of you or, or how people are. Um, and sometimes it's because we haven't arrived or that person has or hasn't arrived at a point in their development where they can look at things with fresh eyes. Correct. Right. Um, or because they don't have the cultural capital uh, that makes them keenly aware of other people's sensibilities. Um do do you think that's where most of the weakness or most common mistakes occur when it comes to people of color that they don't take that maverick approach because they're they're so focused on being well liked you know they don't want to rub people the wrong way yeah it, it, it you know it's hard to really talk right and say like the example I brought to you earlier about someone telling me they couldn't be their full self right and I won't lie to you, and, and, and there was a part of me in my head that was like, man, similar to what your mom said, mm-hmm. set that shit up, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And show up as your full self, right. right? And when I say show up as your full self, I understand that you can't show up as your full self. Yeah. But I also want you to get to a place where within this paradigm, you're showing up as much as you can. Yes, yes, exactly. Right? And I, and I feel it's like either one or the other. And I think on some level, I think on some level when you don't feel like yourself, um, and whoever fault this may be, it may be, you also feel less of yourself from a talent perspective in a corporate environment. So if you really don't feel like you could come as yourself, somehow, some way that may translate to who you feel as, let's say, a journalist, an editor, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. right? Um you know, I think a lot of what happens to people of color in corporate environments are the fault of the corporate environment. But I do feel like there's some level of like, if you're talented enough, yeah. show yourself. Yeah. And that's very easy to say when motherfuckers got to pay bills, rent, everything and everything, right? Mm-hmm. And have their own responsibilities. But like, I think sometimes we, I personally think, I think sometimes we, we trap our we, we shut ourselves up before t- before someone actually tells us to shut up. Yeah, you wrote some shit that I really liked. It, I think and please apologize if I'm like chopping it up, but you said something that we need to stop looking at the power switch and waiting for white hands to actually click on it as opposed to our own. Look, like I I 100% believe this and I haven't talked to anybody about it. I'm real chill. Right. So at work, I think I'm very, very like easy for white people. Mm. 
But I'm chill, though. I'm not, like, trying to, like, put on a show. I'm just chill. You know, and when I need to speak up, I'll speak up, right? And I think there's some people in the organization that are of color that are like, you know. Yeah. This nigga just, you know, he, he fits the mold. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And I think sometimes we strip each other of who we are, right? Like, we strip each other of our own story. Like, you know, you could think what you think of me, but you don't know me, right? So you're automatically like, you know, there's people in corporate environments. Like, I am I will speak up for an issue that's happening of color in an organization similar to you. Like, and not similar to you in the sense of, like, situational, but similar to you in, like, all right, let me look at this like this. And this is the situation I'm going to jump in because I really think this shit is fucked up. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to jump in every single situation right. either. Right. Right. And not because of protectionism, because I don't believe in that specific issue. Right. Right. So I think sometimes what ends up happening at predominantly white organizations is that if you're the black guy that doesn't jump into every issue, mm-hmm. then they like, oh, we can't depend on this dude, this dude right. of the system. Mm-hmm. Right. But uh, but I'm not. And, and there's a lot of people that aren't. And, and I think sometimes we what we end up doing is we like saying black people aren't a monolith and when we get into a corporate environment, we should be a monolith. Right. And it doesn't necessarily work that way, right? Because there's certain shit that goes on that I'm like, that I, that I dead ass in my head will talk to my girl or talk to my friends and be like, yo, they wildin'. <laughs> they wildin'. Yeah. And they may, look, they may be like, yo, Claudio, Claudio's like wildin' for not saying a word about right, this. right. But the reality is, both of us ain't talking to each other, right? And at core, we need to get to a place where the same pressure we put outside of courtrooms, the same pressure we put outside of juries, the same pressure we put out of police precincts is the same pressure that we put in these in these organizations. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes we're too concerned with flipping the table versus getting power. Yeah. Like, I think the goal is to get power. Whether you get power individually or you get power through an organization. Flipping the table can come with that. But power is the ultimate goal. If I can get you to a place where, like, through merit, through whatever, through a combination of multiple things, you as an organization is like, this is the right guy. At that point, I can really find a way to make an impact. But if I'm fighting every single fucking issue that goes on in the building, the reality of the situation, and it it goes to like the Jay-Z, Colin Kaepernick argument, right? Jay-Z works within the system. Colin works outside. You could take either route, right? But I think in corporate media, the only route is really the Jay-Z route. Mm. And the best way that you can kind of infiltrate your way to the top is the only way that you're going to make substantial change within the organization. But when you're the black person that's constantly saying, this is wrong, 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 you can be the most talented motherfucker on earth. They're they not going to care about that right. because they're going to identify you as the rabble rouser, as mm-hmm. the trouble starter. And yeah. they could be wrong. Right. But I, I live in, I, in an idealistic society. I don't live in like what I want 2040 to be like or what I want 2030 to be like. Mm-hmm. I'm worried about today. And what, how I can affect and how the people around me can affect the people within this building, within this organization. Yeah. But if, you, if you're not worried about that, it, 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 to me, it's to me 
it's both a today game and a long game. Um, but if your if your approach is everything that occurs within an organization is racist and not teachable, yeah, where are we gonna go? Exactly. Thank you for that nuance, man. I think it's important for all of us to know that there's nuances and you know it just takes thought and reflection and um, and experiences, cultural capital. You have to be smart. You have to question your prejudices. You have to also do your part in understanding the culture of the organization that you're a part of. There's not like a, a one-size-fits-all approach to, to, to each company, man. But I've, I've had you here for long enough. I want to ask you this, man, because it seems like you have taken a path that has led you to do amazing things, man. Like, and I'm, I'm very proud of you if I haven't told you this already. You know, um, and we don't get to chop it up as much as I would like to, but I appreciate that you're being here and, you know, sharing your gems with us. If you were to say a few individuals, a few people out there that have inspired you, dead or alive, dead or alive, yeah. you know, who would they be and why? My number one inspiration, and people would probably be surprised by it, is Peña Gomez. Peña Gomez, my guy. Yeah, okay. Peña Gomez is my number one inspiration. You got to give people the history. You know, Peña Gomez ran for presidency in the Dominican Republic. Yeah, I think, you know, Peña Gomez ran for presidency in the Dominican Republic in the 90s, right? And um, basically won an election, but it was sort of like overturned on some mm-hmm. level. He was promised a, a presidential post, like the presidency. And then, you know, that didn't end up happening because of Balaguer and, and because of Leonel, right? And everyone has their own historical perspective on that, right? But he was a um, he was a supremely educated, mm-hmm. you know, Haitian man of Domin- Dominican man of Haitian descent, right? Right. Um, a lot of people don't know that his parents were like white people, not like you know, obviously his parents, but like the people that kind of adopted him, mm. right? He went to school in France. Um, he has so many degrees from so so many places all over the world, and I I, I just really have a thing for for grace in the face of hate, mm. right? And, and, and there was just, like, so much grace that Peña Gomez had, not just when he was running, but after he realized that he wasn't going to get what his goal was, right. which was to be president. And I think with Peña Gomez, while he kind of, like, faded a little bit, he was just class personified to right. me. And he reminds me of, like... You know, the Dominican version of a 1920s, 30s Harlem Renaissance man. Mm. Just class, just educated, just... You know, my dad's dad was... Uh, and I think I like Peña Gomez a lot because of my dad's dad. And I, and I only knew my dad's dad until I was four. But my dad's dad ran a, a, a shoe factory in Santiago. Um, and he was he was a baseball pitcher at the same time over there, but he also was a guy that led a union of 300 people. So he was a 6'4 black dude mm. who was Dominican who ran a union of mostly, you know, white, Indian, black men in Dominican Republic. And similar to, to, to your mom, um, I remember my aunt telling me before, like, what I see in you that I saw in him was that race is part of your awareness, but you don't let it affect you, mm-hmm. right? And and she told me, she was like, I don't know if that's a good thing. Mm. But I also know it's not a bad thing, right? right? And, and he used to come home, he used to tell my dad and my sister and, and, and my other uncle, 
he used to be like, tú sabes, yo sé que yo soy negro, yo sé que ellos me ven como negro, pero, pero al fin del día, yo soy su jefe. Mm. And That's no it. matter what, I'm their boss. Right. right. And it touches on what me and you were talking about, managing and, you know, whatever, right? And he was like, this is what it is, and I worked for this. So the last thing that I'm essentially going to do is get to the place I wanted to be and then kind of say, all right, like, I've, I've wanted to be in this position forever, but now that I'm the boss, I'm going to be so much more less of a boss or act like I'm just a regular employee. Right. Yeah. That's for some. But Peña Gomez is, um, is a legend, and I think um, he's, he's very, I, I think despite race, right, and color, He's still extremely well revered in that country mm -hmm. by a lot of people. Yeah. And he definitely deserves even more of the reverence that he currently has. Right. Yeah. Right. My guy. My guy. You know, I remember my mother had really good things to say about Peña Gomez at one point. And um, one of her friends in the capital that we were visiting, light-skinned Dominican women, just started spewing the most racist shit I've ever heard. I haven't seen that woman since. I'm, I'm sure, you know, it, it, it may not be because of that, yeah. but I remember explicitly telling my mom that I did not like her at all. You know, because her... And was that before you even had any sort of racial understanding? No racial understanding. No racial understanding. It's just the fact that someone would, like, judge another person yeah. like that without even knowing them or without even addressing what they stand for, just based on how they look. And that, to me, like, just, it spoke to the worst in people. He was, he, was, he was excellent. Yeah. No. He was excellent. No, no, he was great. He was great. He was great. My man, I appreciate you. Appreciate you, man. Keep shifting the culture through your work, man. Appreciate you, man. Thank you, you so know, much. We're Likewise. here. Thank you, brother. We're here. Waiting for you to keep dropping, but we don't need you to drop every day. It's your time, <laughs> all right? You know, don't don't uh, listen to what the market says. Listen to the art, and the art always tells you, take your time. Take your time, brother. Appreciate My brother, you, appreciate you, so you too, man. This was awesome. I had so much fun. Thanks.